That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I got a text message from a good friend of mine this morning, and uh, he asked me more or less if, uh, if you know, the, he was talking about the emphasis of sport on society. This comes up all the time on our show. Kind of like, is sport a reflection of society? Is it symptomatic? Do the problems that we see in our culture and our society, do they, do they also tend to bleed into sports? The loss of civility, we talk about that on the show all the time, on social media, other places. You know, is it a reflection more or less? When you look at what's gone on at Alabama, for example, the Tuscaloosa News today wrote a piece about Nate Oates, the Alabama basketball coach. He's either clueless or callous, they point out. His leadership and his view of what has happened with the Alabama basketball program is troubling. You know, he's pleading ignorance. Brandon Miller, uh, who has, uh, uh, you know, been, I, I don't want to say implicated because that has criminal uh, criminal uh, implications to it, but, he, you know, he's been involved. He was involved in a case where testimony from law enforcement officers uh, put him at the scene of a crime, uh, a capital murder case. And, in fact, he brought the weapon there because it was in the vehicle he, he drove to the scene. Now, police investigator testified that the Alabama basketball player transported a teammate's loaded handgun to what became a deadly scene. January 15th, 23-year-old woman was killed. And here you have Miller, the same player, posing for a pat-down, um, a uh, ceremony that's been going on before the shooting, uh, apparently unbeknownst to the head coach, uh, despite the fact that it's on the player's Twitter bio profile, his own team. Coach is saying, I didn't know that. Um, There's either revolting insensitivity there or an alarming lack of awareness from both the player Miller and the coach Oates. So problems in Alabama. Subsequently today, also at Alabama in the news, the Jalen Carter warrant has been issued by police. Top NFL draft prospect has been charged with racing in a fatal crash that uh, happened uh, to kill a teammate and a recruiting staff member uh, January 15th um, as well. Uh, For people who may remember the accident, um, there was a Ford Expedition being driven by the recruiting staffer, 24-year-old Chandler LaCroix, that was involved in an accident. It was believed at the time to be a single vehicle accident, right? That was the initial report. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution did what good newspapers do. They went after this story. They tracked down 
the police report and eyewitness testimony, and they unearthed the fact that Carter, was, uh, who claimed to be a mile away from the wreck, was actually uh, believed to be racing against that car in his own vehicle. He's got a Jeep, a 2021 Jeep. He was racing, apparently or allegedly, against the Ford Expedition uh, driven by Chandler LaCroix, uh, which led to the wreck. Now, credit to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for the good reporting, doing what good newspapers do. That's why uh, good journalism and good reporting is important. You know, part of this is public service. Part of this is accountability. But um, Carter says he plans to return to Athens and I found this really interesting, the statement he posted to social media today. He plans to return to Athens to, quote, answer the misdemeanor charges against me to make certain that the complete and accurate truth is presented, end quote. In that statement, he is pointing out that it's a misdemeanor, not a felony. He is uh, implying that what we know publicly isn't accurate or complete. And I think this is probably done at the behest of his agent and his handlers who are probably very interested in making sure that, you know, he, he becomes the highest draft pick that he can possibly come and become in the NFL draft. But it, it raises a, a bigger question that I want to kick around at the top of the show today. There are times in sports, whether it is UCLA and USC leaving to the Big Ten Conference, whether it's an arrest or misbehavior, an allegation of domestic violence, um, uh, an accident involving two Alabama staffers that was believed to just be a single-car accident that turns into, oh, no, they were racing. Um, also, the case in Alabama with the basketball player and the coach kind of looking the other way, doing right by his player, but not doing right, you know, Nate Oates. Um, I, there's times when my faith in sport and my faith in society is, is rocked a little bit. It starts to wobble because I look at cases like this and I go, hey, you know, above all, we're supposed to be people that care about each other. Above all, this is supposed to be our escape and it's starting to feel too much like real life, like death and taxes and, uh, you know, the uh, the news, the top of the news, five o'clock news. And, and there's times when I start to lose a little faith. And, and part of it, too, is when you go to social media, you get a small sample size, right? You get... You don't get an accurate reflection maybe of, uh, you know, what all of society is thinking on social media. It's, it's just the, the way of things. But I, I go there and I get a lot of Alabama fans who are defending Jalen Carter. They don't know anything. They weren't at the scene of the crime. And I get Alabama fans who are uh, defending Nate Oates and the Alabama program. Why? Because they love Alabama athletics, not because it's the right thing to do. But I think Alabama's doing some wrong here. I'm a little bit surprised by the leadership at, Al- at the University of Alabama. I'm disappointed with Nate Oates. I'm disappointed with Brandon Miller, and I'm scared like the Blazers who might be in draft position to draft this guy might go, oh, he's a hell of a talent. Uh, it's not somebody that I would trust with your reputation, with your brand. I'm not sure that you want a guy who was you know, involved in a crime, not charged in the crime, but that guy allowing himself to be frisked after he is introduced I mean, it's uh, it's at very least it's poor form and it's it's a bad look, uh, at the very least. And at most, it's a guy who is just basically flipping off the family of a uh, uh, of a 23 year old woman who was shot and killed in a crime. 
Uh, I want your phone calls at 503-417-7575. I want to talk about this. I want you to tell me, does it at any point erode your faith in sports? Does it, uh, does it threaten what you, your belief system? Does it, uh, does it dishearten you? Well, you know, what you see. And what do you do about that? Because we all come to sports, and I assume you come to this radio show because it's a nice, pleasant diversion from your life. Like, it's it's not, um, you know, the same as the boss that, uh, you know, m- might be uh, on your back, or it's not the same as the lawn that might need to be cut in the backyard, or um, that that to-do list that you have that is growing. Like, you want to you want a few minutes of Calgon Take Me Away, that's what this radio show is supposed to be. And yet, over and over again, we find ourselves talking more and more, not about what's happening on the courts, but what's happening in the courts, and the bad behavior of athletes and coaches and poor leadership and poor leadership examples. And like, uh, you know, the Alabama uh, Tuscaloosa News wrote today about Oates, like, either this guy... Nate Oates is clueless or callous like there's no in between he's either clueless ignorant to what's going on in his own program ignorant to the to the uh, to the idea that like hey it's it's probably bad form to play this guy first of all on the day after police testified that he brought the murder weapon to the scene of the crime or uh, and, and then subsequently to, to not know if he didn't know really that this is uh, how he introduces himself. Like, you know, everybody in the arena saw that, that you know, Brandon Miller at the beginning of games gets introduced and he ha- comes down the line and a teammate pretends to frisk him. Like, how is that news to Nate Oates? And why is nobody on the Alabama basketball staff going, hey, you've been doing this all year, but given what has happened in the last week or two, probably not a good idea to do that. But so he's either clueless or he's so callous that he doesn't care the disrespect that it does to the family. Stephen, are you at all disheartened? And what do you do about it? Yeah, I am just a little disheartened. Um, it's just one of those things where, luckily for me, like you know, I'm a Blazer fan, but I can put my fandom to the side because I did get you know let go by the Blazers, so I can't be like a diehard fan. So I don't necessarily need them to win every game, and I can kind of pick and choose who I root for. Right. So like if Brandon Miller comes to the Blazers, like I'm not going to be a fan of that. And I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not going to be losing my season tickets because I don't have season tickets. Like it's just disheartening because it's just showing that sports is more important than people. Right. And I think like in the long run, for me, people are just more important than sports. Like it's, I, I understand that it is an escape, but at the same time, like a, a, a mother lost her life for no reason. And he was a part of it. And now, you know, the, the whole frisk thing. I can see where Nate Oates honestly didn't know that they were doing that introduction. Like, he, he's probably not paying attention. He's paying attention to the game plan. But someone on his staff has to know, right? And it's just another thing where the Alabama staff has fumbled this entire situation. Every single second of it of this since it's been out, Nate Oates sounds like he has no idea what's going on, not considerate of anybody. When he apologizes again for the frisking uh, cell, you know, introduction, he has to read it off note cards like, all this stuff is just its embarrassing for Alabama basketball. Like, they have looked terrible in this spot. And it is disheartening because, you know, a woman lost her life. And they act like it's no big deal. And, you know, since they're the number one team, number two team in the nation, that's all that matters. Like, I get Brandon Miller on the court. So it is disheartening for me um, a lot of the times. But, you know, I, I feel like for me, I just – I can put my fandom to the side and say, you know what, I, I'm not going to root for Alabama. I don't root for Penn State football because of this same exact reason. Like, 
there's certain players, certain teams, Baylor football as well, like I'm not going to root for it because of what they're doing off the field. Yeah, I remember there used to be a website called cracksmoker.com and they where they outlined all the misbehavior and all the bad deeds that athletes did across sports. And, you know, it was interesting to me, like I was covering Fresno State basketball at the time, and it was like an alphabetical listening listing of every player who had ever been in trouble in the NFL, Major League Baseball, and NCAA, wherever. You know, if you if you were a bad actor, you got listed here, and, and they linked to the offense. And uh, Fresno State had its own category. Like, you know, Fresno State had the samurai sword with Vondre Jones. Fresno, Fresno State, ultimately, in the wake of Jerry Tarkanian's coaching there with Ray Lopes as the coach, had a player that shot and killed a student. Like, it, it was bad. And Fresno State, though, had its own subcategory at, at cracksmoker.com. And, and so did the Trailblazers. And, and we knew that the Jailblazers era was a bad era. What did you do with the Blazers at that time? Because I can remember advertisers being upset. I can remember fans being upset. There were some people who threw in the keys. Were you able to splinter away your fandom from what you knew was right? Because, you know, they had a registered sex offender on the roster. It's mind-blowing to me. Yeah, at the time, you know, I was younger and I was a kid, so it is a little different, like, because I, I you know, I knew this stuff, but I don't know the importance of it when I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Like, I was just in the fandom. So at that point, like, I was a big fan, but I can say nowadays, if this, if that team was this team right now in 2023, like, I would be against the Blazers even more than I got in right now. Like, that, that would not be okay. And... It's, it's, it's just so it's so sad that we really put sports on this pedestal of being the most important thing at everything. And it, it, a lot of it is because of the money. Like, they're making so much money for so many different people. Like, they need guys on the court. The Blazers need to win games, need to get the Western Conference Finals like they did back in the 90s. But, man, John, like, as I've gotten older and just more perspective on life, like, there are a lot more important things than being really good at that sport. And so – like I could, I, there's no way I could root for that team right now. Like there's just no possible way. And I don't think, like in today's world, like I, I don't think you could get that by the NBA. Like Ruben Patterson being a registered sex offender on your roster, I just don't think that would fly in today's world. So I think some of it is uh, reflective of the times. But I also feel like you know it, it happens more and more. It's disappointing more and more to me when I see it. In Alabama, you know, it, it was just a couple of weeks ago, rose to number one in the in the poll for the first time. They had a basketball program that was number one, and the SEC was really proud of that. And in the wake of that now comes a big mess at Alabama. I'm going to, you know, I look, I am committed to making this show an escape, and I tell people, the interns, associate producers, producers, myself, Anna, I always say to people, like, look, Nobody cares if you haven't slept. Nobody cares if your back is bothering you. Nobody cares that people are coming here for an escape. This show is going to continue to be an escape, but I'm not going to start it by, by with anything else but saying I'm really disappointed to see when, you know, sport is supposed to be a leader in a tent pole in our society. It's not supposed to be an anchor, and it feels like one at Alabama right now. Leave it here. we got a great show for you today. you got the bald-faced truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'll tell you what's great about sports. It was on uh, display yesterday during the show. I'm not going to, you know, uh, yesterday during the show, uh, we had a uh, high school kid 
who was a state championship uh, wrestler who came on the program, and he was, you know, he was a little nervous, and he was, you know, he was stammering a little bit. I got to, I got to tell you a story about him. This is what I find charming about sports and the escape that sports can be. Yesterday during the show, we get Ben Hartman, who's committed to Oregon State as an offensive lineman, state champion wrestler at uh, a school in Corvallis, Crescent Valley, and weighs 285, 295 pounds, and comes on the show and does the interview. Okay, show ends. You're going to love this, Judah, and you're going to love this, Stephen. Show ends, and Ben Hartman sends me a DM, and he and he he says, when will the interview air? He was on live. It aired yesterday in the 5 o'clock hour. And I sent him a link. I said, here's the podcast. And he says, yeah, but when is it going to air? He thought we were taping the interview. He didn't know it was a live interview. And I find that incredibly charming. Like, I loved the interview with the kid because it was authentic. It was real. And, and I, I told Judah this morning, I said, give the kid a retweet. Because he tweeted out the link to it. And it's got to make his day. That was pretty. That was pretty funny, and uh, I didn't know that backstory though until you <laughs> yes. just shared that. That's great. Loved, uh, you know, you you got him, you know, raw and real. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's phenomenal. The kids just don't know about live radio. Like they just think <laughs> podcasts. Know. Like yes. like a live podcast that would be a radio show every day, right? Like yes. you know what I'm saying. So like the kids just don't understand that. No, you have to do this three hours a day, John. You don't just get to record <laughs> and you know, pick and choose when you're coming out. It, it's live every day. Every word. I don't know which the, what next word is coming out of my mouth. And I, I told Anna that last night. I said, look at this kid. I said, he thinks he thinks we were taping. It was a live interview. Like, good thing he didn't say, you know, let me do that again. Let me back that up. You know, <laughs> like, you know. But uh, she goes, that's so charming. Love that backstory. Uh, just, it's earnest, man. It's the best. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. People want to talk about this topic. Dre's in Portland. Dre, lead us off. Jay, imagine a narrative if they weren't athletes. Think about that. If they weren't athletes, people would be talking about, we need to throw away the key. You know, like they're not doing anything positive in society. That's how crazy fandom is. You will love somebody because they play on your team or they represent the team that you love. Think about being a parent. If this was your child that was killed, if this was your child that was affected by domestic abuse, I'm sure you wouldn't be on Twitter saying, oh, we need to give these people the benefit of the doubt. No. But because they represent your team and we get so caught up in this team stuff and sports, you look past things, which is that, that's the unfortunate piece. This is the business of sports. It's weird, man. I'm telling you, it's weird because people will come and root for you on game day. I've seen it. They will come root for you on game day. But on Monday, the day after the game, they don't like you as a person, though. That's how weird sports is, Jay. Thanks, people man. lose, yeah. People lose their minds. They lose their perspective. They you lose your value system sometimes. I've seen it, and I think there's enough space now between the you know the Luke Heimlich fiasco at Oregon State in baseball, and I think even Oregon State fans who were upset at the time can probably objectively go, hey, you know, would we ideally would you want a registered sex offender pitching and in uniform on call on your for your team? I think everybody would go, no, we don't. Uh, but it was because he was in an Oregon State uniform 
there were some Oregon State fans who couldn't couldn't get by it. And I think part of it was they had rooted for him and rooted for him and rooted for him and didn't know the history of, you know, his his offenses. And they went, oh, um, you know, since I rooted for him, it would make me a really bad person if I rooted for him. So, therefore, I should defend him and say, hey, everybody deserves a second chance. But I can guarantee you that if you had taken that same player and put him in an Oregon uniform, the Oregon State fans would have been vocal and saying, oh, look at that, a sex offender on your team. And, like, look, ideally, you don't want any of that, right? You don't want any of that anywhere. And, you know, people keep saying second chances, second chances, or you just lose perspective. You lose your compass in sports, and it happens all the time with fans. And I think fans objectively know that. But when it does happen to their own team, I do think they kind of get a little bit lost in it. They immerse themselves in it. They start to rationalize. And like Dre says, you root and cheer for the player, a player you don't know, a player that you blindly defend, and then you come to find out, you know, this person isn't so good, uh, then what do you do with it? Sean's in Vancouver. Sean, what do you think? Hey, you know, the problem is that, hey, John, I hope you and your family are well. Let's start there. Uh, Thank you. Um, so, you know, look at Ben Roethlisberger. Dude is going to, the sexual assault allegations against him, he's going to go into the Hall of Fame. Ray Lewis was at the very least in the room when a man was murdered, and he is lauded as one of the greatest and is in the Hall of Fame. Deshaun Watson did the things he did, and he got one of the most lucrative deals ever in football. Yep. And now this kid in Alabama, what happened? The very next day for Alabama, they were all over every news. There was the Alabama, talking about Alabama basketball, right? It, how did any of this hurt those organizations' bottom lines? And at the end of the day, it's what it's all about is the business. And as a fan, you know, I'm a Texans fan. I have been literally since day one. Am I supposed to walk away from 20 years of being a Texans fan because the quarterback did the wrong thing? Do I never support them again? You know, put the organizations, at least in part, because we're all adults to make our own decisions, but they put us in these situations where we have to decide, is it my fandom I'm more interested in or my outrage I'm more interested in? And since mm-hmm. it doesn't harm their bottom line, guess what they're going to choose? Yeah, yeah, and you're right about the bottom line. I also think there's a way that you can remain – a fan of the team, but also be incredibly disappointed with what the franchise is doing. And by remain a fan of the team, I mean, I think it says a lot that the news reports that were the most critical of Alabama basketball came from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Tuscaloosa News. I, I stepped back from that as a media member, and I went good on those publications for not pandering to the fan base, because it becomes, I think, in the like Sean brought up business, it becomes in the interest of your business to not be that critical because I'm sure there's some people in Tuscaloosa who are not happy with that newspaper that called out the basketball coach and they're going, hey, he wasn't charged with a crime. Hey, how can the coach be uh, held accountable for what the players do in their introductions? Hey, like you start to do that instead of stepping back folding your arms and shaking your head and going, hey, I'm an Alabama fan, but, man, am I disappointed in the leadership at Alabama right now. And if you're an Oregon fan, Oregon State fan, Washington, Washington State fan, Texans fan, whoever you root for, I think you can do that. I think that caller, that last caller, can look at Deshaun Watson and go, nope, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with an organization that 
appeared to condone it. I'm not okay if you're a Cleveland Browns fan. You take Deshaun Watson. You go, no, I don't like what this franchise is doing. But you can still say in your heart, like, this is my team, and it even pains me more that my team is doing this and is is playing party to this. Judah Newby, you're a diehard fan. You're a Seahawks fan in particular. Like, I think, can you be disappointed with your franchise and your team but still root for it? When uh, Seattle drafted Frank Clark, I want to say that was the uh, 2015 draft um, with their top draft selection, like, this whole topic, you know, really intersected because, you know, Frank was in the middle of a uh, domestic violence, you know, um, more than a dispute. It was it was a it was a serious case. And uh, he hardly looks uh, like, you know, uh, he deserved to be absolved of, of any blame there. And I had a real problem with the draft pick. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I thought my team was above it. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of what it came down to. I thought John Schneider and Pete Carroll were above taking a player high on their draft boards. You know, he fell down the draft so far because he, he was a great player out of Michigan, but he fell down the draft so far because of this, you know, a domestic violence case. And yet the Seahawks decided to muscle up and take him. And that's kind of where it bothers me. And Nate Oates is the same way for me. Um, when the Penn State stuff was going down, it's it's very similar. Um, I don't know how Kirby Smart's kind of reacting to this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's similar as well. It feels to me that the people in power making these decisions to, you know, either draft uh, these players or protect these players when there's situations like this, they almost get a sick pleasure out of all the hate on uh, or what they perceive as hate or almost a sick pleasure out of everybody that's saying that they're doing the wrong thing. It's almost intoxicating to them. Do you do you get that sense as well? Or am I being a little too critical of that? No. And I think. We're so good that we're above it becomes a, you know, or, or it doesn't matter. The the basketball or the football will erase the stuff off the court. We know what we're doing. Just trust us. Where do we hear that? You know, it's just stuff like that that uh, I think you're right. And I think it's I think it's disappointing at the very least. Does it, and, does it surprise you at all anymore? Like, it doesn't surprise me anymore that these teams and these schools – are protecting their players and their brands to this extreme because, as a caller said, there's so much money involved. Like it, it makes sense on a business side to do this, and it doesn't even surprise me, which is the really sad part. Yeah, and and we've seen it. I think we saw it first in the NBA because of the guaranteed contracts. There was little that the teams could do if you know a player could do something that was not a criminal offense, but was certainly something that we would all frown upon, or you know, society would call a foul on and but the nba couldn't do anything about it so you saw kind of that apologist behavior i think it's bled into college because the players now in college basketball and in college football have so much um power with the transfer portal and nil and in some cases you know caleb williams is not making the money that lincoln riley's making but he's making more than everybody else on that staff and 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 more than some head coaches at some smaller programs just in nil money so caleb williams can put you know, F you on his, on his fingernails, and we all kind of have to live with it and go, Haha, it's funny or whatever, and then the USC fan goes, well, what? It's freedom of expression. It, you know, it, yeah, it's poor form, you know, to say the least. Like, it does, it does sort of dishearten me when I see that. And, and no, you're right. I'm not surprised by it. Coming up, uh, we'll get a visit uh, from halftime of the Oregon-Washington game in Vegas. Nick Daschle will be joining us to give us uh, the scene 
Uh, guess what? Uh, Oregon and Washington are underway there, but uh, you got um, you know the Ducks right now uh, trying to hold on and get to the second round of the tournament. We'll talk uh, later in the show about the men's tournament, and we'll get a visit from a guy, a college football player, who's now turned into a stand-up comedian. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm very interested in what's going to happen in the men's basketball tournament in the Pac-12 next week. Feel like we might get a wild tournament. Has that has the markers of that in my mind. Uh, the uh, the women's tournament is going on this week. Oregon's playing Washington right now. Oregon's been banged up all season, and uh, currently it's 27-24 Huskies over the Ducks. Uh, we'll get a visit at halftime. There's about two minutes left in the first half from Nick Daschle, who is sitting on press row there. He's going to kind of give us the flavor of Vegas as he checks in. But I want to talk about the men's tournament and how the teams in the state of Oregon uh, in particular may fare in this tournament. Currently, uh, we've got games coming up uh, tomorrow and games coming up on uh, Saturday in the Pac-12 that will determine the seeding for the tournament. UCLA will be the one seed. Arizona will be the two seed. USC, very likely the three seed. Those three are locked in. The fourth team in this tournament, the four seed, the top four seeds get buys in the, uh, in the Pac-12 tournament. So huge advantage to whoever finishes in the four spot because there's not a big difference between four, five, and six, and seven really in the conference. Arizona State currently in the four spot, 11 and seven. Oregon's at 10 and eight, a game behind them. Uh, Utah's at 10 and nine, game and a half back. Washington State also at 10 and nine, game and a half back. So there is uh, a logjam there in a race for that four spot between Arizona State, Oregon, Utah, and Washington State that, you know, all those teams are interchangeable. Utah, when it's healthy, probably the better team. They're not healthy, though. They're, be- they're down their best two players. Oregon has lost more players, more rotation players to injury this year than anybody in the Pac-12. They've been banged up, but they have Cal and Stanford in the next two games. Arizona State has played out of its mind at times and been disappointing at other times. Bobby Hurley's got a team that is made only for Bobby Hurley. But i got to give a lot of credit to that guy because he kicked off his best player, kicked him off the team after two games, and is still sitting right now with that half-game lead or that one-game lead over Oregon for the four spot. Problem for Arizona State is they play UCLA and USC in the next two. Now, unless UCLA decides to rest some players and or USC decides to rest some players, I got Arizona State possibly going 0-2 in those games. Like, if USCLA is playing for NCAA tournament seeding, or USC is certainly playing to try to, you know, make sure they get into the tournament in a decent way, they probably won't rest players. But I have a hard time seeing Arizona State going 2-0 in those games. So I think they'll drop at least one and maybe two. And if they lose them both, they'll be sitting at 11-9. and Oregon, all Oregon has to do in that case is beat Cal and Stanford, and they're the four seed. And I think that's really interesting because Utah, uh, right now Oregon's got the tiebreaker on Utah. Right now Oregon's uh, in front of Washington State by a half a game, and Washington State just has to play Washington. 
Uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting race for four, and I kind of think the Ducks are going to get there. Steven, Judah, uh, you know, if Oregon's going to get to the NCAA tournament, they have to play deep into the Pac-12 tournament, if not win it. And I think if they're the four seed, they got a chance because they get the they get the opening round by. Yeah, I think Oregon has to win the Pac-12 tournament uh, to get into the NCAA tournament. I think that the losses that they've had uh, the last couple of games have really been uh, heartbreaking for them because you know they they were playing so well and then you get swept by the Washington schools up in Washington. Those are just killers. Um, and I, I think they win their next two games. And I'm with you, Arizona State. You know, they are right on the bubble. I mean, depending on what bracketologist you like, either they're right in, last four in, or first four out. Like, that's exactly where they are. You know, I think they need to win one of these games against USC, UCLA, but I'm with you. I don't see it happening. So, you know, I think Oregon gets into that top four. And I do think the talent that Oregon has is just as good as basically anyone in this conference. They've proven they can beat a lot of good teams in the Pac-12. They got a chance. Dana Altman has won this tournament before. Yep. I wouldn't be surprised if they get the win, but it's going to be a tough road, and I do think that they have to win the tournament to get the, to, the, to the big dance. And the thing about this season on the men's side of the bracket is, you know, other than UCLA, Arizona has had some – Arizona State just beat Arizona. Washington State beat Arizona. Um, there have been some bad losses there. That's a five-loss team that is sitting in the two spot, you know, whether it's USC or Arizona. So um, it is kind of has this feel – like, you know, nobody would be surprised if UCLA or Arizona wins it. But it has a feel maybe that's a little different than some other years in that I could see USC winning the tournament. I wouldn't be shocked by that. I could see Oregon winning the tournament. I wouldn't be shocked by that. I even could see Arizona State doing it. I, I would be surprised by just about anybody else. Uh, joining us now, it's halftime in the women's tournament. Oregon is playing uh, Washington at halftime in Las Vegas. Joining us from Vegas, Nick Daschle, Oregon Live, joining us. What's the scene courtside there, man? It's lively. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I, I think I told you I was sitting right behind George Klyakov, and he's, 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 he's looking pretty casual today, taking in the, the Oregon-Washington game. I don't know if he was at the first game, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fairly lively atmosphere here. Um, they always try to make this thing. I mean, you've been to this thing before. They they always try to jazz it up with a lot of music and stuff. So, uh, 29-27 yeah. at halftime. Washington leads Oregon. Uh, Oregon has fought injuries this year. Grace Van Sluten, yeah, I, I noted that she got some minutes. How did she look? That ankle not not okay or okay? You know, she. I mean, she's getting up and down the floor. I, I don't know if she's really done anything, you know, specifically to – help or hurt the cause i think mostly just getting her out there to you know see if she can contribute in any way she hasn't like i said she really hasn't done anything yet but uh, mostly the defensive end oregon just had you know just had a, like about an eight minute stretch there where they just couldn't do anything other than that they're fine let me ask you women's basketball in this conference i think the big surprise to me is suddenly seeing uh a team like utah look like hey they could they could make a Final Four when it when it comes to uh, you know the NCAA tournament. What has happened at Oregon State in Oregon in your mind in the last uh, year or two? Well, I mean, one of the things you know, fans keep emailing me and asking, you know, what's wrong with Oregon State? You know, there's a number of reasons, but but one thing is is other schools are taking women's basketball pretty seriously now. I mean, they, they, they that wasn't always the case, you know, six, eight, ten, twelve years ago. Uh, you know, everybody's trying to get a piece of the pie, and it's not quite as easy to, you know, be 
be on top as it used to be. But Oregon State's, you know, Oregon State's issue is, is you know, the transfer portal. They've, they've lost players that they would typically, you know, the third and fourth year players they count on to, to be there every year. They're not there all of a sudden. And so Oregon State's having to try to figure out how to pivot to this, this new era. And you know, I think Scott will figure it out. But, but you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a challenge right now. I, I think they come into the tournament, you know, playing – Probably about as well as they've been playing, you know, of late. And they they did get a win on Saturday, so they they've got a shot. I mean, with Oregon, it's just you know, again, the transfer portal. They seem to lose a lot of players, and they you know they they're reloading with new ones. But you know, experience matters, and they don't have a ton of it. Plus, they've had you know some injuries this year too, so that that's been a bit of an issue. Do you, you know there's five ranked teams in the conference uh, at the top, and Oregon and Oregon State. I'm used to seeing them there, and they're not there this year. It, you mentioned the players getting in the portal. Is there any one reason why they jump in the portal? Are they not happy? Is there an issue, or is it is it that is it the pandemic? I've heard other I've heard all sorts of explanations. I mean, what school isn't losing players other than Stanford? Everybody's kind of losing them these days it's just last year with Oregon State they lost you know players that really I mean they're playing two of them are playing on Duke which was a top 10 team this year Texas they they lost one to Texas and they're a top 10 team and um, you know they've, they've lost some good players I don't know the you know I don't know all the issues it's kind of hard to get good information out of you know Scott when it comes to that sort of stuff I think he's just he's trying to figure it out and um, I think players are looking for opportunities. I, you know, part of it is, you know, they, they've, they've got a little bit more national re- with recruiting, and when you do that, you, maybe you're, you're recruiting kids that are two and three time zones away, and, you know, they get, they get here to Oregon, and, you know, maybe that's not as comfortable for them, and they end up, you know, transferring. That's, that's been the case with the, several of them that left. They, they, they were from other parts of the country, and now they're back kind of closer to home the surprise in the women's standings is utah 25 and 3 15 and 3 in conference play number three ranking what is utah doing boy you know they they about three years ago they they really started getting some players that could shoot it and they 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 their offense is tremendous they, they they've got the best offense in the conference i think just from watching everybody this year when they played Oregon State, I, I mean, they're so impressive. They just the way they run their offense, and they're, they're always getting good shots. And you know, now they got good players. And I mean, they're they're I mean, they're they're a threat to be a one seed in the tournament. Which did anybody have? I don't think anybody had that on on their on their you know on their bracket going into the season. You know, everybody thought Utah was a tournament team, perhaps, but a one seed that's that's kind of crazy. I want to flip a little bit, and again, you're you're visiting us from halftime in Vegas, as uh, Oregon is playing Washington down by two. The Ducks are down by two at half. But the men's tournament will take place next week. There's still some seating to be decided. Um, USC and Arizona are going to play each other, and USC could leapfrog Arizona and be in the two spot. Which of those two teams do you like better between U- USC and Arizona right now? Oh, I always I like Arizona. I love Arizona just because I, I I like the way Tommy coaches and I like their bigs and I I just don't know what I don't know what to, I don't know if I can always trust USC. I 
and I watched them, you know, when they played Oregon State, and Oregon State should have beat them down, down in L.A., and, you know, and, and they did end up beating them up here. So um, I don't know. I just – I don't trust USC. I just they're, – they're, you know, they're good, but I, I just – I think Arizona is just a more reliable team. I just like the way Tommy coaches. Yeah, look, uh, you look at the tournament as a whole – I think it's going to be more wild than and wide open than some other years. Uh, but give me an idea, Nick. You've watched these teams play. Uh, you've seen a little of Oregon, a little of Washington State, Arizona State. You know, give me a a team that could be seated four through seven or eight that you could see getting to the title game. It wouldn't be crazy for them to get to the title game. Well, you know, title game. I don't know if Stanford could get there, but they've figured they've figured out that they're not they're not a bad team. They they were a bad team early in the year, and they got things figured out about middle of the season. They've been tough. They've been pretty tough the the, the, the second half of the season. I don't know if they can get the championship game. I mean, outside of the top four, I mean, shoot, I don't know. Colorado can play defense, but they their offense is is pretty subpar i don't know if they could get there oh you know arizona state i think you mentioned them before they yeah i mean they're possible but i guess the sleeper team would be would probably be stanford uh, that that's that's just kind of my gut feeling at this point washington state i know sits there on a lot of people's you know brackets where people think they could make a run it's possible i just i like the way stanford plays and they've been playing well of late I, i'd give them a puncher's chance to you know, at least make, maybe make the semis as, a, as an outsider, and who knows once you get to the semis. Look, uh, Washington is leading Oregon 29-27 at halftime. Uh, Nick Daschle, you're on the scene there. I appreciate you joining us. Um, the Beavers uh, coming up uh, will play USC tonight, late in the late game there. Uh, you give Oregon State a, shot, a puncher's chance in that one. Well, they went to overtime with them uh, in in L.A. a few weeks ago. So, yeah, I mean, Oregon, Oregon State has given everybody trouble this year. They just can't finish games, but they did finish the other day. So maybe that's all it'll take. So, yeah, I'm, I'd give Oregon State a shot. All right, go uh, go play some roulette afterwards. I'll catch up with you. I'll see you in the arena. Yeah, what, about 2 a.m.? <laughs> yeah, on your way home. Dashiell, yeah. thank you, man. All right, all right take all right, care. There he is, Nick Dashell joining us uh, live via satellite from the Strip. Uh, look, uh, I think it's going to be fantastic to see the tournament. Next week we'll dive deep into the men's tournament, but the women are playing now, uh, today, tomorrow, Friday, Saturday, and they'll determine the conference championship in an automatic bid for somebody. Leave it here, our big splash coming up. <laughs> Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've got a basketball scout who has been working on evaluation of the Pac-12 tournament teams, Pac-12 men's teams in basketball for most of the season, watching them up close, evaluating them uh, on Monday at johnconzano.com. We'll have a big Pac-12 preview of the uh, men's tournament and uh, sort of handicapping the field, laying it all out. Uh, we will talk about that 
next week as well. Uh, it leads us into our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Must be the big splash. Well, the University of Washington announced today that its athletic director, Jennifer Cohen, who has been on this show, has been named to the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. First female athletic director and the fourth woman overall to make the College Football Playoff Committee. Big honor for Jen Cohen. In a statement, she said, quote, I'm incredibly excited to join the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. She thanked everybody for the opportunity and said, quote, I can't wait to get to work. Uh, it's interesting, the, the college football playoff, I want you to chew on this, because on tomorrow's show, we're going to get a visit from the CEO of the Knight Commission, and the Knight Commission is an independent organization that is there to kind of give recommendations to the NCAA and to college athletics in, in, at large, and really did kind of institute the idea of academic progress and you know, it's kind of a watchdog organization, more or less, that oversees and recommends and nudges the NCAA. Um, we're going to have the CEO of the Knight Commission on the show tomorrow. You know, it, it doesn't sound like a big splashy interview, but it's kind of a big deal. And Amy Perko is the CEO, and she's a former Wake Forest basketball player. You know, when, we, when I was lining up the interview, I started doing some research on the college football playoff and the NCAA tournament. Because today's March 1st, right? It, the NCAA tournament brings in a billion dollars a year. One billion dollars a year in revenue. That money is used to put on 90 championship events, including the D2 and the D3 tournaments in football. The college football playoff, guess how much money the NCAA makes off that? Zero. No money. The conferences and the teams that participate keep all the money. And yet those teams and those conferences, what do they do? They hide behind the shield of the NCAA when it comes to litigation and rules enforcement and all sorts of things. I think you're going to see the NCAA putting some pressure on the college football playoff to share some of that revenue. Keep an eye on that. Leave it here. Punch it audio still ahead. You got the BFT statewide. B-F-F-T From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland Presented by High Caliber Millwrights Here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth We're going to play Punch It Audio coming up here in a couple minutes Best sound from all around you are here from Aaron Rodgers and C.J. McCollum. We'll talk about the NCAA. Gonzaga. Is Gonzaga on the move or not? Plus, you'll hear a little bit about uh, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State uh, football. and I may rant. I may rant for just a couple minutes. It's part of Punch It Audio. Feeling a rant coming. Anna will pop into the studio uh, a little bit later, and uh, we'll get a visit from a comedian. College football player turned comedian. It's true. Is there anything funny about football? Well, we'll find out. All of that coming up. Steven, how you doing, man? What do you do with your mornings? I don't know anything I don't know anything about your mornings. Oh yeah, the morning. So uh wake up, uh 
<laughs> get the lunch ready for the for the oldest, the eight-year-olds. Oh, you're and, the lunch guy. I well, we kind of shared the duties. He's very uh, very picky with his lunches, so I kind of got both. I got to get his snacks, got to get it ready, uh, drop him off at school, come back home, basically hang out with the little one for about an hour, get him ready for school, and then uh, go wow. home and do errands for everybody else. So you're a good dad. Thank you. Really good dad. But did you find, like, okay, so tell me, like, I kind of think maybe my kids, I don't know if this is normal or not, but my kids don't don't prefer school lunch. But when I went to school as a kid, like, my parents once in a while would say, okay, you can get the school lunch. I loved it. It was a treat. Yeah. But, you uh, know, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, no, so, like, my son, there's a couple things he really likes at school. Uh, so it's not every day we have to make his lunch. There, there's certain things he really likes. You know, like what? Ch- chicken nuggets. Uh, okay. There's a chicken burger he really likes. They have chicken and waffles. So we must really like the chicken there, I guess, like, you know, the little chicken nuggets, <laughs> I guess. But, uh, yeah, there's a few things like that he really enjoys. Uh, mozzarella sticks they serve. He really mm. wants the mozzarella sticks as well. So uh, those are the main things he wants. And then, you know, if it's not those days, then basically it's like, uh, you know, we got to make his lunch for him. Yeah, all right. So here's how it goes. Uh, Anna was recently out of town because her mom wasn't feeling well. I talked about this on air, and Anna jumped on a plane. It was right when the snow was coming, and she flew to be with her mom and take care of her, which is good daughter stuff. And that left me, you know, it, we we usually do zone defense. It left me like all alone. It was it was like I can remember in elementary school playing dodgeball, and you're the last person. And the other team has like three, <laughs> you know that feeling. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, just helpless. <laughs> yes, and you're just going, okay. I'm going to try to catch one of these balls and eliminate one player and don't get hit. Um, and so the very first morning, and on top of that, by the way, we had all the snow hit, so the kids were a little squirrely. So, but the very first morning that they had school, Anna gave me all these instructions because she's the lunch maker. And she's like, okay, here's what you want. Here's what the eight-year-old wants. Here's what the six-year-old wants. They won't want to do school lunch. They want, you know, you to make it. And uh, so I got up real early on school morning number one, and I made these lunches. I was very elaborate with it, okay? I'd never done this before. I didn't want them to go to school and look back and go, Dad ain't worth a damn. So I, di- I even made a little container of, like, a thermos container with soup in it. Like, I put a spoon in there. I put a napkin in there. I put, like, a bunch of snacks in there, a little bit of treats, and then sent them off to school. Uh, but before I did all that, I read them the hot lunch or the school lunch menu. And it was something, I can't even remember what it was, but they didn't like it. Both of them were like, oh, no, gross. So, so I sent them to school, and it was really, like, oddly important to me when they got home to get the report for it. So I said to them, I wanted a little cred, which parents know you're never going to get it. Uh, I said to them, uh, I said, well, how was your lunch today? And the eight-year-old said, I ate every every bit, Dad, and I really appreciate I put a couple chocolates in there. I really appreciated that you, you sweetened it up, you know. And, but the six-year-old looked at me, and she said, yeah, you were wrong about the menu. It, they have this pretzel item. It's like a pretzel and cheese. I don't know what that is and why that qualifies as lunch, but it must be like a hot pretzel. And like the six nacho year- cheese? I don't know. I, be, I, ooh, I, be good. I have, yeah, I have no idea. But the six-year-old looked at me and said, yeah, it was a pretzel day. Sorry, Dad, I didn't eat any of it. <laughs> so <laughs> that whole thing, the whole orchestration, all my anxiety over packing the right lunch. And I was like, damn. But I, I remember being a kid. Judah, did you? 
did you bring a lunch? Did you do school lunch? What was your what was your blend? We always made lunches the night before, and yeah, brought the brought them in. We didn't do hot lunch all that long, uh, all that often. But was it was it viewed as a treat when you did it, or was it just uh, when you looked at the menu and it was something you liked? You know, I wasn't rooting for any of my classmates to get sick, but whenever a classmate was sick, I was like, "Did they have hot lunch today?" And uh, I would get that hot lunch. Oh, you would get their lunch. Yeah. Sometimes the free lunch is free. It's so good. Though. I mean, there were specific yeah. things that I love. I remember, like the mashed potatoes and turkey gravy was just unbelievable at my elementary school. It's like pizza. That, yeah, like that. There, there's just a couple of treat days every single time that I'd have to look on the schedule. Like, all right, let's get that day. We had this lunch lady. Her name was Shirley, and Shirley, uh, I never saw her in a standing position. She was always seated giving out the lunches. So, she, you know, she would be like, by the time we saw her at lunch, she was seated and she would have uh, like this huge mobile kind of thing with wheels on it that had all the hot lunches on it, like for, probably for the whole school, probably had hundreds of lunches on it. And if you got hot lunch, if you paid for it, wherever it was that day, you would get in line and Shirley would, you know, give you your lunch. Shirley had these mirrored sunglasses. I never saw her eyes. You could just see your reflection as a kid in these giant mirrored sunglasses that she would wear, indoors or outdoors. I don't even—I never saw her eyes, and uh, I can just remember whenever it was pizza day. That's when I got hot lunch because I liked the pizza. I said to my kids, "You like the pizza?" And they're like, "No, it's soggy." And I got—it's a little bit snobby, a little bit snobby <laughs> with the school lunches, but they want to bring their lunch. I. I remember not liking to bring my lunch. Like, my parents would make me a salami and cheese sandwich, and I would open it, take a few bites of it, and I probably wouldn't eat very much of it. Like, I'd probably be disgusted with myself if I really got real with how how much of my lunch I ultimately threw away as a kid because, uh, again, as soon as you finished eating, what did you do? We went to play football or basketball. And that was what lunchtime was about. It wasn't about eating. Yeah. It goes back to what we've talked about numerous times, John, how we, uh, we spoil our kids because I'm with you, like, you know, we would make our kid a sandwich, but he wouldn't eat it. Or we would say, hey, go get pizza. Yes. And he's like, I don't like it. So, like, I'm, we're with you. Like, you said you made him soup. Like, we make our kid, like, cheesy noodles basically every day yep. and put it in a thermos for him because he yep. won't eat, like, a peanut butter <laughs> jelly sandwich. It's like we if we just gave in, like, he would eat nothing. So it's either eat nothing or, you know, do a bunch of work in the morning for him. How was yeah. your uh, college cafeteria? It was good. It wasn't as commercial as they are today. Yeah. Like, I go over to Oregon or Oregon State. And I see that like there's a to go, to, you know Togo sandwich place at Oregon State, and there's a, and, like I would have ate there every day. Like, I, but I don't remember it being that good. But I, the dorm food was all right. Like, you know, I'm sure that kids who were in the dorms, you know, my, my kid when she was in the dorm last year complained about it by the end of the year. She was sick of the f- same food over and over. But I think that they they have evolved in a way. Like the the food services at the schools have evolved in a way that is probably positive. You know, I would eat there right now. You know, <laughs> that, that you give me an option of a cafeteria, I'll take that right now. All right, let's play some punch and audio. We got great sound. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. We're going to get a little weird in today's Punch It Audio. We're going to start with uh, Matthew Mayer, who missed practice, Illinois forward, because he has caffeine poisoning. He drank six 
monster energy drinks in one day. Hasn't practiced since Sunday. Punch it. I've actually been sick the last few days. I had caffeine poisoning. I literally had uh, six monsters the day of the game. I only had one before, but I had five after because I like a caffeine-induced euphoria to play video games in. Um, and <laughs> so I, uh, I could barely get out of bed the next day. It was like basically like a caffeine hangover. And uh, so this is my first day of practicing since then. It's serious stuff. Caffeine overdoses can cause vomiting. They can cause disorientation and seizures, uh, heart issues. It can be fatal. Uh, I know he's kind of joking around about it, but um, anybody who's ever had those energy drinks or maybe been dehydrated and had those energy drinks understands what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, I can remember one time I didn't know what even what I was drinking, and I drank one of those Starbucks energy drinks, and afterwards I didn't feel right for about 24 hours. Uh, it's a lot of caffeine. Uh, glad he's all right, but uh, keep an eye on that. You don't want to OD. Aaron Rodgers comes out of the darkness, joined a podcast to talk about his mindset. What did that experience do for him? Punch it. I think people have to first, you know, I don't know when they're going to see this, but we're like 48 hours getting out of the dark and actually getting my eyes back. So, you know, 48 hours ago I was in the dark and you know, now I'm, I'm out, but... Uh, it's been a lot of time uh, reflecting out of that and journaling and um, trying to uh, really adjust back to uh, this reality, even though there's only four days, but so much happened during that time. And there's just so, so much contemplation out of that because there's really four separate days and many different topics. Um, I think as much as anything, before there, there felt like uh, one, scary option and one uh, unknown. That All right, Aaron Rodgers has come out of the darkness, but he sounds like he's in a haze. Did any of that make sense to you guys? Like, I, as I hear him talking, he's kind of, he sounds very calm. Yeah, no, it didn't make any sense. And that's why you know, I pulled the clip and I'm like, what is this guy yeah. talking about? Like, I was just laughing the whole time. Like, he just, I don't know if this is a bit or like what his, what his, what his thing is. Like, he went into the darkness and now he's acting like he's he goes on and he talks about the scary option being retiring and then like going on maybe i could play also like i just feel like this is just a bit at this point of i'm gonna do these weird things and i'm gonna be strange and be out there i, I just don't get the guy I, I just wanted i just wanted to be over with kind of because I, I i'm just tired of hearing him and you know spew some nonsense i'm always uh do i want him on my team or the other team guy i'll do that with a lot of things do i want you on do I want you on my team? Do I want to be on your team? Uh, for Aaron Rodgers right now, it's a no for me, dog. Uh, let's go to Matt uh, Norlander, who's talking about uh, an NCAA all-time scoring record that could fall tomorrow. Punch it. I mean, it's the all-time scoring record in college basketball, and it did take him five years, so there is, you know, the same way that we were saying Pete Maravich did, and you wouldn't believe it, he did it in three years and without a three-point line. It'll be Antoine Davis did it, but he did it in five right. years and he had a COVID year. It's just going to be it's going to be the aside to it, but he's going to have the record, and he's going he he had the eligibility. I have heard from a few folks who were kind of like, shouldn't this have an asterisk? No, I mean he had the eligibility. They gave him the bonus year, and he was able to to use it. So no, it's 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 his. The the odd aspect to all this or just it's just a bummer it's like Detroit Mercy has been a non-factor like it's never made the tournament it's never been a good team since he's been there but 
He decided to stay with his pops the same way that Maravich did, and uh, he could have transferred elsewhere. I mean, not, he wouldn't have been averaging as many in other spots at high majors as he is here, but he decided to stay behind and finish out his career with his dad at Detroit Mercy, and now he's highly likely he's highly likely to do it. It's not a guarantee, but all he needs is 26, and he's done that or more in nine straight games. Yeah, keep an eye on this because it's a five-year accomplishment for Antoine Davis at Detroit Mercy. Pete Maravich did it in three years. And if Pete Maravich had come along five years later when the NCAA granted eligibility to freshmen, because he was not eligible, like I think conservatively he tacks on another 1,000 to 1,200 points and puts this thing way out of reach. I do think it matters that he had three years of eligibility and Davis had five. And feels no three-point yeah. line either. Yeah, it feels silly to me. Like, you can't, you can't equate these two things. Like, give credit for longevity to Davis. Give him credit. Like, he's a scorer. But I, I'm not putting Pete Maravich and Anton Davis in the same category here. One of these guys did it in two fewer seasons. Andy Patton, who is uh, the host of the Locked on Zags podcast, he joined us on this program last week. He's talking about Gonzaga. They're looking for a deal. Are they kicking the tires on the Pac-12, the Big 12, the Big East? Here's Andy Patton. Punch it. They're trying to get a bidding war. I don't think that's incredibly secret. They want, the Big 12 has expressed some interest but hasn't formalized an offer. I don't know if they will formalize an offer, but for Gonzaga, they are content to stay in the WCC. Some people will think they shouldn't be, and that's fine, that's understandable, but they have a they have a good deal from the conference right now. The conference has given them a bigger piece of the puzzle financially in terms of making the NCAA tournament. They made some concessions in part because about five years ago, Gonzaga threatened to leave to the Mountain West. Uh, and it got to the point where they had the Mountain West president's vote on whether they would accept Gonzaga as a member. The vote was unanimous. And then suddenly the WCC started making some concessions and started kind of backtracking a little bit and finding ways to, to keep Gonzaga in the conference. So Gonzaga has an okay deal. And Pac-12 basketball, do not get it twisted. It is better top to bottom than the WCC. Even without UCLA and USC, it is better. But it the is gap not, is closer than I would like it to be. It is not that much better, exactly. I mean, like you look at the bottom of the of the Pac-12 is Cal and Oregon State. The bottom of the WCC is Pacific and Pepperdine. They're not that far apart. <laughs> look, I like Andy Patton. We had a guest get him as a guest on the show, but you can't talk about the competition in the Pac-12 and the WCC. You can't talk about it like it's an apples to apples comparison. The real equation, the math equation that Gonzaga needs to address is is financial, 100%. Are they are they attractive to the Pac-12 as an addition? Does men's basketball move the needle enough? It's generally only about 15 to 20% of your media rights value. So if, let's just assume the Pac-12 teams are around $30 million each in their next media rights deal, that means Gonzaga is probably only worth about $6 million to the Pac-12, 15 to 20% of that, right? So is that enough for Gonzaga to leave the safety of the WCC and the existing deal they have directly with ESPN to jump into the Pac-12 and, and look, have to mix it up with Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon, 
Washington and others moving forward? That's a big, big question. Greg McElroy on ESPN. Already talking some college football. He's talking about USC. Are they a playoff team this year? Punch it. If I were to bet right now, you say, Greg, do you say playoff or no playoff for USC? I'm betting no playoff. But I still think the pathway is there. You have the ultimate neutralizer and a game-changer in quarterback. And guess what? You just can't be that much worse defensively as you were last year. I'm a little worried about replacing Tui Pelotu, but either way, they should be okay or at least somewhat improved with some new faces and a better understanding of the system as a whole here in year number two. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic that SC will be in the mix, but I think 9-3, and 10-2 and two is probably a little more likely for the Trojans here in 2023. I tend to agree with that assessment. Um, and look, I don't want to sound like a hater, but I felt like USC was vulnerable all year long. I kept waiting for somebody, Oregon State, somebody to get them. And in the end, I think it, some things just fell into place for USC until the title game. Um, I won't be surprised if USC's in the hunt, but I also think that the Pac-12, with all of the great quarterbacks in the league, is going to be a much tougher place to go undefeated in conference play. Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, DJ Uingalele, um, you've got you know, Dante Moore at UCLA. I just think there's some guys that can kill you. And I, I don't know if anybody's going to go undefeated in conference play. I would bet against it. Plus, Colorado, could Colorado be a surprise next season? Like, you know, we've talked a little bit about that. Could, you know, could they rise up and beat somebody? Uh, Colorado will play USC in the second week of conference play. That's Punch and Audio, best sound from all around. Uh, Anna will pop in the studio uh, coming up next. Plus, later in the program, an offensive lineman turned comedian. We'll talk it uh, to Nick Cody, former Oregon Duck offensive lineman. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna was uh, supposed to be on the show a little earlier, uh, but something happened. At the top of the hour, the 4 o'clock hour, she says to me, uh, I got to go back to the school. She had come from the school where she picks up our kids after school. And apparently, did you steal some kid's jacket or what happened? I didn't mean to. There's a kid in her same grade that has the exact same Columbia coat. It's like a gray coat with the foil on the inside. It was on the bench. I took it and I realized it in horror. Called the mom immediately. How did, how did it fit when you put it on? Stop. <laughs> Turns out it's like two sizes larger. You knew the mom? Yeah. So you called and said what? Sorry, I uh, lifted your kid's coat. I'll be right back. This is like a Winona Ryder thing, you know? Oh, my gosh. Remember that? Yeah, what a weird phase for her, huh? Yeah. What happened to her? Is she around still? Yeah. She's still doing movies and she stuff? She made a big comeback in Stranger Things, that uh, Netflix oh, yeah, yeah, series yeah, yeah, yeah. there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Remember her now. Yeah, yeah. She didn't look the same. You don't think? Mm-mm. Okay. Well. You know, from Reality from, Bites right. to now? Well, yeah. You don't look the same either. I don't know about that. I feel I feel like I do. <laughs> I feel like I'm a closer approximation to myself at that time than she is. Yeah. You know? Do you think having a shaved head helps with that? Yeah. Because it's sort of a timeless thing, right? Yeah, a little bit. 
you know? Uh, you know, look, I, I, I was this way before it was fashionable, though. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do think I, I play younger. Mm -hmm. You know, people look at me and they go, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure how old I am. Depends what I start belly aching about, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what happened? You took the jacket back? It was no big deal. What did the police say? No big deal. Holy jeez. <laughs> Harsh. Steven, what's your verdict on this? Judah, did Anna swipe the jacket or was it an honest mistake? John, as much as I want to agree with you, I'm on Team uh. Anna on this one. <laughs> honest mistake. I don't think Anna's going to be stealing some kid's jacket uh, to wear. You want the truth? I had a shoplifting problem when I was little. I really did. Here we go. <laughs> well, I, I did. my answer then. I'm on Team Full John now. How, I, how I old were you? Why. Five? Like, it started when I was in third grade. I was at the Claire's Boutique at Mall 205, and those charm necklaces were big, those plastic charm necklaces. And my mom was there with me and wouldn't buy me the ones that I wanted, so I just lifted them. And she, we walked out of the store. She saw that I had them and obviously knew that I hadn't paid for them, uh, immediately slapped me across the face and marched me back into the store and forced me to apologize to every employee in the store. Was that some of that slap? Was that cultural? Because I, <laughs> yeah. I don't believe that today <laughs> that we we're not a slapping family. We're, we don't slap. But th was that a cultural thing? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Corporal punishment. Big in Asian culture. All right. So then you never stole again. No, it didn't stop me from stealing again. Yeah, I still, <laughs> I don't know why. I like just Is went this still this... going on? No. Okay. No. She knew the punishment was just a slap. That's fine. She can survive that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a small price to pay for a charm. <laughs> for a charm necklace. No, like, and then in like sixth grade, I like stole this girl Nikki's like lunch tickets. I don't even know why. I think I was a little troubled. The, and after that, did it continue through college and your adult life or... Did you leave it in sixth grade? I mostly left it in sixth grade. Okay, in just... high school, I did steal it. What? <laughs> oh. I don't know why this is a confessional. Yeah. Um, in high school, I did. I stole a sweater from the Mervins in uh, the Gateway District that I, again, uh -huh. really wanted, but, like, mom wasn't paying for it. Okay. That and, one I kept. And now you stole this kid's jacket. <laughs> I could see the bridge here. You know? Stephen, do you want to do you want to revote? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, after all the after all the evidence has been put, made to my attention, uh, Anna guilty. Come to think of it, I haven't seen my wristwatch. Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm on the real world and okay. I'm in that confession Let's, room. All right. So, is this something that? Why were you stealing at that? I don't at that know. Age? I think it was like, you know, it wasn't that we couldn't afford it per se. It was just I don't know. Showing I don't know. off. Like, maybe for the thrill of it. Like, a lot of times people steal, and it's not because of a financial reason. Like, I don't know. Uh, I would like to open the phone lines for other people oh. to confess. <laughs> You're confessional. You don't have to give your real name. If you want to get something off your chest, 503-417-7575. I would like to hear other people show that vulnerability that Anna just showed in admitting that <laughs> She has uh, that now. You know why? When we play Scrabble, I sometimes go, "Hey, are you playing by the rules?" Okay, that's not the same. Now you know. That's not at okay. all the same. It is the same though. <laughs> it is. It's no, it's, it's honesty. Really not. Yeah. I play for points. He plays for the length of the word. That's you know. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I'm cheating. 
You it play means that I'm making use of every triple word and double word and double letter score that I can. You play a little with a liberal interpretation of the rules. <sighs> okay. Um, I like this right, new so, bit, though. What, what'd you steal Wednesdays? Call in. <laughs> get it off your chest. I want, if you have a confessional, if you've done something that you just, you, you need to get off your chest, this is the time to do it. You'll, believe me, you'll spark other people to do it at 503-417-7575. Weigh in now, and if you're a listener, stay tuned. This will get, this will get a little squirrely. I just know it will. Uh, thank you for getting that, for being honest, Anna. Yeah. All right, so you're done? Are you done thieving? Yes. You know? Yes, it stopped in high school. You brought back the jacket yes. to the thing? I took a candy bar when I was like six. What kind of candy bar was it? I don't even remember, but I do remember my parents in the parking lot. They were mad. Yeah. They walked me back into the store. It was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. They made me bring it to the manager of the grocery store mm-hmm. who was sitting at kind of that customer service area. Yes. And they made, and he was trying to dismiss it, like not a big deal. Yeah. And my parents were going, no, it is a big deal. And they made me apologize to to the guy. Yeah. And give it back. No slap across the face. I did not get slapped across the face. Mm -hmm. So tell your mom she owes me one. (laughs) 503-417-7575. It's confessional time on this, on this great Wednesday. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Confessional time. You heard Anna. She uh, bared her soul in the last segment. Did you sneak into a movie theater using the back door? Did you uh, drive in the uh, high-occupancy vehicle lane with... Nobody in there with you? Did you uh, circumvent the uh, queue in the t- buying Taylor Swift tickets? 503-417-7575. Uh, we'll talk some sports. I got I to got, I talk about Dwight Howard and Taiwan here coming up as well. Um, I got some questions. Anna, I think you're uniquely qualified on this subject, given that you were born in Taiwan and you <laughs> tend to understand the culture Maybe. there and your dad's living there. Maybe. So uh, I have some questions about that. But let's go to Dave in Vancouver. I do have a line open at 417-7575 in the 503 area code. Dave, you want to get something off your chest? Go ahead. Yeah, so I was like six, seven, eight years old. My family was at, uh, you know, the old Jansen Beach Mall, and we were in Payless. And I stole a, a Charlie Brown pin. I thought it was really cool. And I didn't know until I got home, like, you snapped the head open. And it was like strawberry lip gloss. And it was a pin. <laughs> but but uh, uh, my mom caught me, asked about it. I admitted that I stole it. But she let me keep it. And I still have it to this day. It's in a box somewhere. I saw it 10 years ago. And I'm curious if Anna still has any of her stolen possessions. Ooh, what do you do with your stolen goods? Because she admitted on the air that she did steal them. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious if she still has possession of any of those. Good. Did did you keep Dave? What are you gonna do with that thing? By the way, you gotta. Maybe you should take it back and take it back and return it. Say, hey, forty years ago I stole this. Yeah, (laughs) I've actually showed it to people and said I stole that. Like in 50 years ago. Like, you guys oh are my like God. trophy hunters over here. Anna, do you have the goods? No. Do you have, have that charm I necklace? I don't have any of the evidence. No. 
And hopefully the statute of limitations has well run out on all of this. Is so. there is there such a thing? Oh, we'll see. I don't know. I, the other day, out. you were out of town. i got to be honest with you. I was digging around in boxes and stuff that are kind of just like some stuff laying around. I'm like, what is this? Uh-huh. And I sifted through it, and there was an old library book in there. <laughs> and I realized that we have possession of an old library book. Yeah. And I took it out, and I put it on the counter, and I said, we're going to take this back. We may have been charged for it. We may oh, have yeah, paid we've, for it. we've paid for that. We've okay, paid for that but one. we yeah. need to take the book back. It's yeah. not right, Anna. <laughs> Kids steal from libraries. I didn't mean to. It's not right. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, the shame. Now, can I ask you about Taiwan? Sure. I have a question for you. And I noticed this first when I was in Beijing for the Olympics in 2008. Go over to Beijing. It's an Olympics. So I expected to see some, like, posters and billboards involving sports, and there were. But I also noted, you know, I went into this sporting goods store, and it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this. The mannequins in the sporting goods store were all of Kobe Bryant. Yes. The mannequins. Mm -hmm. Like, it wasn't like a faceless, nameless person. The actual mannequin was Kobe. Mm -hmm. And then they would have different clothes on him. But it was a big deal, I guess, to consumers in China that this was Kobe Bryant. Oh, yeah. And then the other thing I noticed is, uh, you know, I'm in a taxi, and we go by a park where a bunch of kids are playing pickup basketball in China, which I didn't know was a thing. Like, I didn't ex- – I don't know. Maybe that makes me racist or something, but I just didn't expect Chinese kids to be playing pickup basketball like – a sea of kids. Mm-hmm. It was a very popular thing to do that summer. Yeah. And all the kids were wearing those NBA commemorative jerseys. Yes. There was, you know, Sonics jerseys and Blazers jerseys and Lakers and Suns. And the kids were all jerseyed up. Mm-hmm. Then I go to the game to watch the Dream Team play. And I've never seen the crowd do this, even at, like, an NBA Finals game. Um, the entire crowd's on its feet for introductions. The scoreboard with the Jumbotron screen on it is hanging, like, from the center of the arena, just like it does at Moda Center. Mm-hmm. And when the players are being introduced, the the fans in China all have their phones and their cameras out, and they're taking pictures of the screen mm-hmm. that is showing the player. Mm-hmm. They're not taking a picture of the player. They're taking a picture of the screen that shows the player, okay? Mm-hmm. So twice removed. Now... I saw this story today on Dwight Howard, how he's over in Taiwan, okay? And I kind of think it's a cushy gig to go over to Taiwan and play in the T1 league. But, you know, he's in the league. He's shooting threes. He won their three-point contest, by the way, for their uh, for their all-star game or whatnot. But um, he's shooting 26% from three. How about that? But he dominated their all-star game. He scored 37 points. He had 13 rebounds. He was named the MVP of the game. I kind of got to think, um, you know, it's a big deal to people in Taiwan that a former NBA player who's kind of washed up. Would you say he's washed up, Stephen? Dwight Howard. Uh, yeah, the game has passed him by. Okay. He's washed up, but he's a star there. Oh, yeah. And he's the all-star game MVP and probably walking around, you know, uh, the cities in Taiwan. What are the major cities? Taichung, Taipei, Kaohsiung. Oh, okay. He's walking around those cities and probably stopping every five feet to take yep. a picture. Absolutely. What is the fascination in Taiwan and China 
with the NBA and star athletes? Well, I mean, there's just a little bit, like, over the last, you know, four or five decades, there's, like, just worship of American culture or at least, like, a high level of curiosity and attempt at adaptation of the American culture. Like, they just like it. And then among the young men in Taiwan and China, and I, I know this because I started to realize, like, my cousin – who is around my age, maybe a little bit older, like he would be asking me about the Trailblazers and he knew everyone on the roster. But he's living in Taiwan. But he's living in Taiwan. Okay. And I'm like, this was like pre-Jeremy Lin even, you know? And so there's uh, somehow the NBA has really like captured um, the culture over there. Basketball is really heating up. My own, you know, cousin Sophia is playing professional women's basketball in Taiwan right now. And I'm sure Dwight Howard, like brilliant for him to go over there. Like he's going to be, you know, worshiped like a God over there. Not only is he like towering over most people. I mean, they kind of just have a fascination with any American that's walking down the street, but they're especially going to be stopping someone like Dwight Howard, who's so physically domineering and wanting to take pictures with him and get autographs with him and, you know, just think he is, like, you know, just amazing for being there. The, that league uh, that he's playing in in Taiwan has a maximum salary of $20,000 a month for foreign players. However, they are paying Dwight Howard a million dollars for the season. They see it as a buy-in as, with publicity. And, of course, here we are talking about it. Um, and, but it, it, even Linsanity was kind of crazy because mm-hmm. I can remember your dad being really excited about that. Yeah. And when you'd call back there, people were excited about Jeremy Lin. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, there's little sparks here and there. But, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know necessarily what the NBA's plans are. But if they can tap into that culture – uh, you've got a huge market base, right? right, to get excited and to buy merchandise and to, to be followers of the NBA here in America. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's obvious that's what their aim is. They're looking, like, I think the NBA knows that, hey, there's market share to be gained in America, but it's much harder when you're up against the NFL, Major League Baseball, hockey, tradition. Kind of the NBA goes, you know, hey, this is fish. This this swim this fish hole is, you know, it's mm-hmm. fished out, yeah, so to speak. Um, and they can do some things to grow the game, it, you know, it, you know, domestically. But the opportunities, obviously, the NFL is going into Europe and playing games there in London and other places, and in Mexico City. We saw the, you know, 49ers play there this season. So they're they're all trying to do this, but they're realizing like, hey, there's there's viewers in China, there's viewers in Taiwan. And it kind of makes me think about, like, I can remember, remember the whole controversy during that 2008 Olympics was over Darfur and human rights violations mm-hmm. in the Chinese government. And people kept wanting LeBron, who's selling sneakers for Nike, to say something nope. on the topic. And yep. he wouldn't. Nope. And everybody was frustrated with it. Right. So give me an idea. From, an, from a standpoint, like, there's far more money available in the NBA but is there a player, Stephen, you can even weigh in on this. Is there a player that really isn't popular in America that could go over there and be a massive star? Or would you have had to be a star at some point to have the validation to uh, get really – like Dwight Howard was a star player in the NBA. He's an all-star. Like, so I'm sure the people in Taiwan are like, oh, NBA player Dwight Howard, I remember him five, you know, 
five millenniums ago. Mm -hmm. But is could you take a guy like Drew Eubanks off the Blazers roster and go, he's going to go to Taiwan and he's going to be a mega, mega star? I don't think you could just take any random NBA player because, you know, there are some examples of this. You know, Stefan Marbury is a great example. He was a star in the NBA. He went over to China, and now he's in, like, the Chinese Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's the most, like, famous player over there, and they loved him when he played. He was that popular, but he also had a following going into it. So I don't think it's any player. I think you have to have some type of clout coming over there, but they, you, you know, you can make a really good living just playing basketball and playing overseas like that, especially if you are a person like Dwight Howard, right? Because it's all those things you mentioned. He has all the clout from the NBA stuff, and now he can go over there and – you know, he is, like Anna said, he's like a god over there. He's larger than life. So I don't know that you could take any player, but if you have some type of clout over in the NBA, you've done something in the U.S., I think you can become a really big star uh, overseas. Well, and, you know, frankly, from a merchandising standpoint as well, you have, like, a growing upper middle class, middle class in China. You have more people walking around with discretionary income. It's not just the haves and have-nots as much anymore, um, similarly in Taiwan. And so, like, I can tell you, because I know I'm in contact with them, like, my 14-year-old boy cousins, uh, like, they're getting Air Jordans for their birthdays, and they're posting all about it on their social media. Like, that's what's driving the bus for them in a similar way, you know, over here. So there's, there's definitely, like, global appeal. It's interesting. Let me just throw this out. I just looked up Dwight Howard's career earnings. 18 seasons in the NBA. He made $245 million. He doesn't need the million dollars. What's he doing this for? Legacy. <sighs> it's a legacy play. Go to right. Taiwan. Be the you know the king of Taiwan. He's going to be the big fish in a small sea, man. It, but for, it boosts his ego, yeah. For a million bucks? I'm sitting on a beach if I'm Dwight Howard. Yeah. Maybe I don't know enough me. about Dwight Howard and his personality. Is he magnanimous? Is he like, you know, is he a big personality? I think he probably misses it. Okay. Needed it. Not enough to be at the end of the bench uh -huh. for an NBA team or become one of those clipboard-holding assistant coaches that people go, oh, yeah, I remember him when he played. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I guess he's going to Taiwan. And to the point where you say, you know, you can make some money doing it, uh, Sophia, you're – cousin yeah she played at uc davis yeah she's american born but mm -hmm. she has does she Ta have taiwanese descent does she have dual citizenship uh no she's a u.s citizen she's a u.s citizen who is of taiwanese descent yes and she uh decided after college to go to taiwan and play professionally is she making good money over there do we know what do we know about her uh i don't know i don't know about the money i know that she's having a great time and i know that like, based on just her looks, like, she has a very American look to her. They like her. Which is very different from the Taiwanese basketball players. Like, they love her. Yeah. You know, I know. I noticed like, she's doing fashion, like, on her yes. Instagram and stuff. She's yes. looking like a fashion model. Yeah, like, because I, I think the sponsors are lining up to, you know, chat with her. Good for her. I also, for, yeah. going to, this, like, the role of how you are as a basketball player, when I worked for the Blazers, that's what I was told, is the hardest thing to judge any type of player is – if they will adjust their role, because these guys have all been the man in high school and college. Like, they're all superstars. And when they get to the NBA, like, it's hard to have them adjust to a role, like a, coming off the bench, right? And so, for I think for Dwight Howard, like, 
you're right. He doesn't want to be at the end of the bench on a team. Like He wants to be the guy and get the basketball and get a lot of stats. Not even about the money. Yeah, not about the money. It's more about like he just must love playing basketball, but he also wants to get the ball and score a bunch of points. Like He doesn't want to sit on the end of the Lakers bench and never play. Fascinated by all this. Leave it here. Uh, the 5 at 5 coming up top of the hour. We'll also talk to a former University of Oregon football player who's now on the comedy circuit. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. If you want to read me, you read me exclusively now at johnconzano.com. That's where you find my columns, my insight, my analysis. I appreciate everybody that uh, has made... Uh, that part of their regular reading. If you are a subscriber, whether you're a paid subscriber or a free subscriber, do what's right for you. Uh, you get my column in your inbox in real time. As soon as I hit publish, boom, it's there. You don't have to go hunting for it. It's right there on your mobile device or in your email inbox. Uh, appreciate everybody who has subscribed. I'm absolutely blown away. Creeping up on uh, the one-year anniversary of the project. Remember that, Anna? Yeah. When uh, it went rogue a year ago. Yeah. And uh, got to thank everybody who's been part of that. It's been, uh, I think it's the best decision I ever made. To, you know, I Besides think the, marrying me, I, yes. I think it's the best professional decision I ever made. <laughs> there she is, stealing my thunder. See the thing? Shoplifting my thunder. Um, <laughs> you changed uh, my Twitter for a I, I, uh, I, I, got, I look back on it. It was like a year ago. It, went, it was like a blur. Well, for anybody that's gone out on their own and done something, you know, entrepreneurial, they can relate. They can relate to the uh, trepidation that comes with it. You know, there's uh, moments where you're like, okay, is this going to work? And, you know, hopefully people can relate also to the idea that, wow, you know, this was this was a great decision. It was very reaffirming this whole last year and the support that you've gotten for your writing, which you know is well deserved. Well, I I I just go to you know I think the time was right. I think more and more the relationship between the reader and the person who's actually doing the writing, the the fewer people you have in between that relationship, the better. <laughs> you obviously want a copy editor involved in there, right? You want. Uh, some kind of direction and thought, but and I have those people that I lean on for that. You know, there's a whole bunch of people, and I keep saying we because there is a we here, uh, photographers as well. But you know, I was told over and over again, hey, people are reading you because you're on the newspaper website. People are reading you because you're there, like by the paper itself. And I grew increasingly skeptical of that because I actually saw the numbers. I could see the analytics. I could see that people were coming directly to me. And I thought to myself, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to go do this, this is the time to do it. This was just a year ago. I can remember being deep in thought, thinking, is this the right time? And so I believe it was like March 11th that I actually launched johnconzano.com. And there was a moment there. You were there. I was in <laughs> Vegas for the men's Pac-12 tournament. <laughs> Launched the project, posted the first column, and then we were walking through the casino. Yeah. And we were in the sports book, and I looked down at my phone because every time somebody subscribed, I would get a notification. And my phone looked like a slot machine. It was just literally like boing, boing, boing. Like, you know, people were going, hey, 
I'm on, I'm in, I'm on board, I'm reading, I'm here, you know, whether it was a free subscription or a paid subscription. And then I've looked up over the past year, and look, um, the numbers of people who are reading me far greater right now than any point of my career. Uh, I, you know, some of the columns that I've written have had 250,000 people read them. Um, and that dwarfs the readership that I was getting before, and it's so affirming to feel like I am in direct relationship with you, the reader, and to the point where, like, when I file a column and it goes right to your email inbox, whether you're reading it there or you're clicking on it and reading it on Facebook or Twitter, people can actually reply to the email. comes right back to me. And I find myself going back and forth with readers having these great conversations. So there's nobody in the middle of that now. So if you want to if you want to be part of that, you want to read me, go to johnconzano.com on this commercial break. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. And let's have some more fun as we go into year number two. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Later this hour, Nick Cody, former Oregon offensive lineman, will join us. We'll talk about uh, you know his experiences in college football, in addition to the fact that he is now on the comedy circuit. I got to give that guy some credit. He has gone out and he has uh, decided he wants to be a stand-up comedian. He's taken some classes and he's got a comedy show that is uh, coming up later this week. I think it's uh, I think it's tomorrow night. Uh, it is March the first of the year 2023 i call march 1st make a life day my grandfather it's his it's his birthday today he would uh and one of our daughters this morning asked me i said hey you know it's old, we call him old papa around here uh he died several years ago and one of my daughters said you know how do you remember his birthday march the first 1910 was his birthday wow. i remember that uh and i got i had the pleasure of Knowing my grandfather, knowing him well, he lived a long time. He died at the age of 94, but he was such a profound influence, such an important influence on my life, even as I talked about in the last segment, embarking on my own endeavor, leaving the safety of a newspaper, a news outlet to go out on my own and say, hey, I'm going to create my own content. I'm not going to have anybody telling me where to go or what to write anymore. I want autonomy. I want to be able to cover the things that readers care about. I want to be able to, you know, jump on a plane and go to the Pac-12 tournament and write what I want to write about, you know, not have somebody kind of barking at me. And I, I, all my grandfather's influences were in my ear. This was a guy who, in his 20s, you know, was working in the steel mills in Pennsylvania in the suburbs. And that's where his father worked. It's where his brother worked. They were immigrants from Italy. This is what was op- the opportunity that was available to him. And what did he do? At age 20, he jumped on a, on a train, headed west, tried to get to the 1930 Rose Bowl in Pasadena because Pitt was playing USC. And, you know, he called the Rose Bowl the granddaddy of them all. It means something extra to me because I think about my grandfather getting on that train, trying to get to Pasadena. He ultimately got there after traveling all across the country on his own dime and working odd jobs. It took him like two months to get there. And he uh, ended up missing the Rose Bowl. (laughs) Got there late. 
okay? Because it took him so long. <laughs> but he looked around and he saw cherry blossoms on the trees. And he said, this is January in California? And he went back to Pennsylvania. And when he married my grandmother, he said, we need to get out of here. There's no opportunities here. We need to go west. And that must have been a terribly frightening thing for her. She grew up, you know, uh, you know, immigrants from Italy. He's immigrant from Italy. They're in a small labor town, blue-collar workers. They leave the safety and, you know, what they know for the promise of something else. And my grandfather used to say, you know, make a life. That was his thing. Very simple. Make a life. And what he meant by that is go and uh, dare to dream. Go and take a leap. Go and believe and bet on yourself. And I heard his voice and his influence in the back of my mind as I was uh, embarking on, you know, the johnconzano.com thing. And I, I can tell you, I got glassy eyes that day, uh, March 11th of last year, when I saw the readers reading and going, I'm with you, man. I'm wanna, I want to read you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to johnconzano.com now. And I got, I got uh, glassy eyes as people were signing up and subscribing. And it just meant a lot to me. That and, and my grandfather's influence, though, was there because he bet on himself as well. And I can remember my grandfather, like, I, I met him in Vegas one time. He loved a craps table. Okay, that's another <laughs> thing he liked. He liked Jack Nicholas on the golf course. He liked the Pittsburgh Steelers and the 49ers. He liked uh, the Wainer brothers, the Pirates, because he was a Pittsburgh, you know, guy. Um, and uh, my grandfather liked a craps table. And I can remember... He wanted to go into, like, one of the old casinos, okay? We were over at, like, Venetian. We were over at, you know, on the, on the newer part of the strip <laughs> in the new casinos. And he said, I want to go to, like, Tropicana or something old, <laughs> right? Riviera. Re yeah. And so I said, really? And so he said, yeah. So we go down to this old casino, and we walk through the doors. My grandfather took, like, 15 steps into the place, and he stopped, and he says, it's dying on the vine. Let's get out of here. And... <laughs> I kind of heard that in my mind as I decided to go out on my own. Like, I just felt like it was a, I'd rather, like, the consumer for me is the reader, right? It's not an advertiser, it's the reader. And I want to be in the relationship with the reader when it comes to my writing. Like, you know, it, hey, if you want to read me, read me. Uh, you know, and I'm going to continue to give you sourced, in-depth commentary and analysis and good heartwarming stories that make your eyes glassy, so... Isn't go. it true, though, like whatever industry you're in, you know, to be keeping your eyes on the horizon, like recognize what is happening around you and, you know, have your eyes open to what is changing and what is trending and, you know, where things are going. I always think it's interesting when people find themselves like stuck or they're surprised yeah. when things happen. And it's just like you, you didn't see that coming like that i think that's the beauty of like what your grandfather did is he always had his eyes on the horizon looking to what was next and what was better for his family ultimately yeah and uh and i just i i know i in my very first column that i wrote at johnconzano.com i wrote about my grandfather it was my very first post and it was for that reason so i appreciate everybody who is who is reading me and sharing that with other people um, I still occasionally run into somebody who goes, hey, where do I find you? And I'm like, hey, johnconzano.com. It's pretty simple. All right, let's do the five at five. Anna's got five big stories 
The Oregon women won. They beat Washington 52-50 in the hey! women's Pac-12 tournament. Look at that. So they survive in advance. The Ducks uh, will move on, and they will play Stanford tomorrow. Number one seed, Stanford. It'll be a big, uh, big opportunity, but they are still alive in Vegas. Uh, the Beavers are playing tonight in the 8:30 game. Uh, we'll keep you updated on all of that. Let's do it. The five at five. The five at five. And a number one story, as you see it. Well, maybe the commander's owner, the Washington commander's owner, Dan Snyder, should have been a little more serious uh, about dealing with Jeff Bezos. He's in some pretty hot water right now. Uh, the minority owners of the team are claiming that he basically was using the team as his personal piggy bank. There was a footnote in a financial report that revealed, it's always in the footnotes, a $55 million credit line taken out 16 months before without their approval. So Whoops. federal grand jury, yeah, big oops. Uh, how did he think that was just going to like slide by and no one was going to notice? It's like Enron. Um, a federal grand jury has issued subpoenas for team finances related to the loan. Counsel for the commanders and a team spokesperson are decline, declining comment, but they do acknowledge that the team's been cooperating with authorities uh, in Virginia since last year. It, this, to me, is, yeah, it's despicable Daniel Schneider, but to me it's more reflective of the NFL owners kind of turning their back on Schneider. And it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, as he he's not going to go down without trying to take some of the other owners with him. But, you know, this is white-collar, rich, billionaire owners turning on another white-collar, rich, billionaire owner. Keep an eye on that. They're trying to squeeze Daniel Snyder out of the fold. Number two in the five at five. Uh, Kobe Bryant's widow, Vanessa Bryant, has settled her remaining claims with L.A. County for nearly $30 million. This is for photos that its deputy shared after the crash in 2020 that, of course, killed Kobe Bryant, their 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, and seven other people. This settlement does include the $15 million that a jury already granted her in August after a trial in federal court. Yeah, I look, I, there's a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of pain, a whole bunch of suffering. I'm, I'm only mildly interested in the money that Vanessa Bryant is getting out of this. Like, it's not about the money for her. I'm also interested in the other people who died in the helicopter crash that, that we don't talk about. And, you know, whether or not they're going to ultimately get settlements from the various entities that uh, will be sued as part of the accident. One of the co-plaintiffs whose wife and daughter were also killed in the crash received a $20 million settlement. Man, that's, yeah, doesn't bring people back. But I, I saw a documentary on the crash. I was watching it. It was like an FAA sort of, uh, you know, they, they kind of reenacted what went wrong or yeah. what they think went wrong. And it was... An unfortunate case of pilot error, likely, flying conditions, visibility being bad, pilot got disoriented. I hadn't thought of, I don't think about things like that because I'm not a pilot, but being disoriented and being in the air and not knowing that he was basically driving that uh, helicopter, or flying that helicopter at a downward angle, he thought he was, he thought he was lifting. He had no context for where he was. Wow. Number three in the five at five. 
I know you guys have probably talked about this some, but I'll bring it up here. Uh, Ex-Georgia defensive lineman Jalen Carter now has an arrest warrant issued by police. Turns out uh, they're implicating him for reckless driving and racing in the fatal crash that killed his teammate, Devin Willock, and the Bulldogs football staffer Chandler LaCroix earlier this year. Um, I guess he was at the Combine today, but did not speak. And the evidence seems to indicate that he was uh, involved in operating his vehicle in a manner consistent with racing after leaving a downtown area in Georgia at 2.30 in the morning. I got to say that, you know, one of the things that I took away from this, A, I think NFL teams have serious questions about Jalen Carter. Uh, I think it'll give some teams some pause. Secondarily, like I want to give a high five to the media contingent that covers Alabama football. You have the Tuscaloosa News coming out today being really hard on Nate Oates, the men's basketball coach, basically calling him out, calling him on the carpet. You have the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that did all of the reporting on this Jalen Carter thing. Like I know the police eventually you know, they will do their job, but credit to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for not just being like, pom-poms out, let's cheerlead for the team. They smelled something funny here, and they continued to ask questions. They continued to talk to witnesses. They continued to push the police for details. And ultimately, like I think they, there's some public accountability that both the Tuscaloosa newspaper and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution have put on Alabama sports. We all know how difficult it is for news outlets that are amid like complete hysteria. Number one team in the basketball polls. You know, a team that is a perennial contender in football. It's not easy to be critical of those things. So I want to give credit to those two news outlets who are holding Alabama athletics and Alabama players accountable. In Georgia. Number <clears throat> four. 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 Yes, four. Uh, <laughs> uh, more off-court, off-field issues entering the news. Memphis Grizzlies star John Morant. I know you guys have mentioned this as well, but these accusations are resurfacing that he was punching and flashing a gun at a 17-year-old and also threatened a mall security guard. He's accused of punching the teenager 12 or 13 times during a pickup basketball game at his house, his own house, last summer. Uh, the interviews conducted reveal that uh, the teenager said Morant went into the house after hitting him and reemerged with a gun visible in the waistband of his pants and his hand on the weapon. There was another incident involving a mall security guard felt threatened by Morant in a parking lot. Um, Morant is being sued by that teenager. Ultimately, the authorities did not uh, press criminal charges citing lack of evidence, however. It, it, this reminds me of some of the troubles that a young Zach Randolph had in Portland and then later in other places in the league. I think sometimes it's really difficult even for star athletes, to get away from the trouble that they were surrounded by as young people. John Morant needs somebody in his corner who's not a sycophant, who's not an enabler, somebody who's a voice of reason that will he will listen to, to pull him aside and go, hey, you need to stop acting like an idiot. This, is, this doesn't end well if you continue to behave like you're not supposed to be a respectable, law-abiding, 
above the fray star athlete. This is not the behavior of somebody that you would build a franchise around. And if uh, you are John uh, Morant's team, you have to be concerned by this. Number five in the five at five. I'm going to end it with something a little lighter. Uh, Larsa Pippen, ex-wife of Scotty Pippen, has, I guess, reached the meet-the-parents level of her relationship oh. with... <laughs> dun, 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 Michael Jordan's son. Marcus Jordan. Mm. Uh, so I guess she's spoken with Michael Jordan uh, and, uh, and Marcus's mom. And I guess they have no issue with them coupling up. It's true love. True love. 48-year-old uh, Larsa is talking about her relationship. They're officially... Uh, boyfriend and girlfriend now with uh, Marcus Jordan. Old He's is 32. Marcus? He's 32. Okay. 32. Okay. Yeah. You know, they've spent holidays together. It's good. She, she used uh, to babysit him. She <laughs> did. Wait, really? Yes. No. Because Pippin and Jordan were teammates. She used to babysit him. Really? This is weird. <laughs> well, this is not just 16 years of separation. <laughs> she believes kay? age does not determine one's maturity, and all that matters is that she's happy. I'm, I'm Who glad. Who are we to judge? Uh, look, when, when Scottie Pippen was with the Blazers, yes. Larsa would walk into the arena late. Uh-huh. I think intentionally so, wearing a fur coat, sauntering in, all eyes looking at her as she's walking around. I think she loves the attention. Uh, I'm not going to dismiss that there's some love involved, but it's strange love. I don't think you're right. She's saying that she first met Marcus four years ago. I don't think so. At a party in L.A. I think she babysat him and forgot. <laughs> she's... <laughs> That's her story. She's saying that He said, publicly? can I get another popsicle? And she said, no, I'll date Stop you in it. 25 years. Allegedly. <laughs> That's the five You wouldn't even five. be saying anything if it was the other way around. Like, we don't say anything when a man dates somebody that's 16... Years younger. Uh, I you're, no, you're, I think I think some yes, things. Yeah. Mm. One time you he and I, you things. and I were on vacation. One time, I don't remember where we were, but we were in a swimming pool, and I saw an older gentleman with a woman that was like half his age, mm-hmm. and I first thought, well, maybe it's his daughter because they were kind of arriving at the pool together, mm-hmm. and then he got in the water. And it wasn't a good look, okay? He's a, he was aging, and things weren't where they were supposed to be on his body, okay? He was old. And, uh, like, I'm just saying that. Like, you know, I, my, when my grandfather was in his 90s, he used to go to the gym with him, yeah. and he'd say, hey, can you help me get my T-shirt off, whatever? And I'd be like, whoa, man, like, that's my future, you know? Like, I mean that with a love in my heart. Right. But this guy was in the pool, and then this woman, you know, I'm going to say he was in his 70s. Uh-huh. This woman had to be, like, in her 20s. Okay. And she was sitting on the edge of the pool. She looked like a model. Mm-hmm. And they started kissing. Yeah. It was weird. Not his daughter. And I, I believe I said something to you about it. Yeah. And went, like, you know, I can't stop looking over there. <laughs> like, this, there's something not right about that. But, good. hey, look, good for her, I guess. Is that what we say? <laughs> good for her. I say that when I see someone running, so I have a hard time with that. When I see somebody running down the road and I'm driving, and maybe it's a real hot day or it's a cold day or it's early in the morning, I'll look at the person. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they're running fast or slow. I'll be like, good for you. Yeah. I feel like I'm doing that with Larsa right now. Good Good for for you. 
Good for you, Larsa. Isn't it a little like complicated though? The fact that you know she was married to Scotty Pippen. Pippen and Jordan were teammates. They kind of haven't had the best relationship over the years yeah, it and is all weird. that. Like it's, it's just very. I think the relationship that. So Malik Beasley got traded to the Lakers, and his teammate is Scottie Pippen Jr. Malik Beasley dated his mom, and now they're on the same basketball team. I think that's even more weird. <laughs> I need a diagram. Yeah. Like Scottie what, Pippen's you, mom dated Malik uh-huh. Beasley, and now Scottie yeah. Pippen Jr. is on the same team as Malik Beasley. Uh-huh. So he's right. dating So his, Malik Beasley's going to turn to Scottie Pippen Jr. and go, you know, I could be your dad, <laughs> your stepdad, if it had worked out. Yeah. But it didn't, so yeah. you know. Okay. He knows yeah. his mom. Malik Beasley knows Pippen Jr.'s mom in a different way. Maybe the dating pool for those famous people is just so small, right? Like. But don't you feel there's a little bit of like the Kardashian world going on with Larsa Pippen? Oh like, sure, of course. She's going, hey, is, this is good for my brand. <laughs> like we're talking about her, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I, Probably. I, I don't know. And, and the funny thing was, I can't remember. I think we had. Marcus Jordan on the show years really? ago. Oh, yeah. How about that? Because I believe where did he play his college ball, Stephen? Do you? Do you he know played at uh, Central Florida. No, it wasn't him. I think it was the. <laughs> I think it was the other kid. Uh, the, the other one played at Illinois. Yes, it was the other one. Is that is that Jeffrey or That's, Michael? Yeah, Jeffrey played Jeffrey. at uh, Illinois. Marcus played at UCF. Yeah. Okay, we had Jeffrey on the show. So, Larsa may get to Jeffrey later, <laughs> but Jeez. not yet. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Hey, love who you want, all right? Don't at me, getting mad at me because I said, uh, you know, it raises eyebrows with me that Larsa Pippen is dating or in a relationship with Michael Jordan's kid. It's just strange to me that, you know, that's happening. Um, you know, I'd feel the same way if uh, one of uh, Scottie Pippen's kids was dating, uh, you know, Michael Jordan's ex-wife, you know? It, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a little different. And I can't help but think there's some Kardashian uh, that is uh, that is locked up in that. Um, trending on Twitter today is uh, Terry Stotts. Did you see, uh, did you notice that, uh, that uh, Terry Stotts was tr- was trending? I have, I have noticed that. Uh, it's interesting because people are, I, I immediately, immediately thought that Terry Stotts, maybe he's in play for a job. Maybe he's ready to get back in, into the game. But really, it was people comparing Terry Stotts with Chauncey Billups. And uh, whether or not, that Terry Stotts would uh, be a uh, a better coach with this team. I do think Terry Stotts would get more out of this team. Uh, I noticed you were frustrated with the Blazers' performance last night. Is it coaching? Yeah, it's coaching, but it's also the roster. It's a lot of things, John. And I pose this like, is it coaching? Is it the roster? Is it the length of the team? Is it their defense? Is it all the above? Like, there's just so many problems is it management, which is probably the number one reason, but there's so many problems with this franchise right now. Like, I don't even know where to start. And, like, that's the sad part is, like, the future the future of this team is just, like, 
there's no hope to become a top seed really quickly. Like it's going to take a couple years at least. And it's like with Damian Lillard, you don't really have a couple years. Like you, at the most, you have two, three really good years of Dame. So it's just frustrating. But you know, Chauncey, it was a bad look last night. Up 17 at halftime, looking great in the first half. No adjustments made at all. The Warriors come out and blitz the Blazers in the third quarter and end up winning by 18 points. Where they're playing the bench players at the end of the game, they're playing the you know the end of the rotation, and the Blazers were up by 17 at halftime, and you just lose it. It was so quickly, and there's just no adjustments. It's, it's the same thing. Dame is getting trapped, and the players aren't in the right spots. And so I don't know, I don't know if Terry Stotts would have been the answer for this team. I really don't know that. The team had kind of quit on Terry Stotts. I thought it was time yeah. for a change to get Chauncey Billups in here. But so far, almost two years into Chauncey Billups' tenure. Looking like he's not the guy either. So I don't know what the Blazers are going to do. They have him for a five-year yeah. contract. The fifth year is a team option. But, man, he, two years in, not looking like he is the right coach for this team. Well, we all know why Chauncey Billups was hired. He was hired by Neil Olshay because Neil Olshay wanted to buy himself some more time. He wanted to set up the narrative that this was a rebuild. He threw Terry Stotts under the bus. The roster was broken. I thought Terry Stotts did a nice job with the roster that he had. I agree with you that the era in general was stale. It just was like, and I and I wrote it at the time, I think Terry Stotts, you know, did a really good job with what he had. And the Blazers, in some sense, I thought, especially offensively, were a lot of fun and got a lot out of what they were. Uh, you know, the, the sum was greater than the parts on a lot of nights. Uh, but I agree that there was a season for all things and that the arc of Stotts' tenure had sort of flatlined. And it just felt like, you know, but I also think what should have happened is there should have been a change, a firing of the GM and, you know, a firing of the coach at the same time and let a new GM come in and hire his own coach. Uh, but they didn't do that. They allowed Neil Olshay, who was running rampant and unchecked in the franchise, they allowed him to come in and hire Chauncey Billups, who was a coach that, A, he was very comfortable with and a person that uh, I think Neil Olshay could point to and go, hey, we're in a rebuild. This guy hasn't been a head coach yet. Be patient with him. We have to remake this roster because the ultimate goal for Neil Olshay was his own job preservation. And I think he lasted a lot longer in Portland because there was absentee ownership. So he hires, he hires Chauncey Billups, who frankly was not qualified to be a head coach in the NBA. He just wasn't. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, he just wasn't. Yeah, 100%. And there was, you know, I had heard rumblings about Chauncey Bills being hired about January, February, when Stotts was still the coach. Like, he was going to be the guy. All the other interview, interviews that they had was basically just fake. Like, Chauncey was the man that Neil O'Shea wanted, and you're right. It's because the, the management was in such turmoil that Neil O'Shea just wanted to do what he was going to do to keep a job, and he was doing a great job of it. He should have been fired with Terry Stotts when the Blazers got swept by the Pelicans, um, you know, 4-0 when they were the favorites in that series. They get swept. They both should have been fired at that point, but they weren't because of Paul Allen's health at, the, at that point in time. So it's just Neil Shea did a great job of keeping his job. And, like, the Terry Stotts era, it was good, and then it was done, and they needed to – so I was fine with the firing, and I was okay with the hire of Chauncey Billups, but at this point, like, you're going to have to make a decision. Like, is he the guy? It doesn't seem like he is, and he wasn't qualified. He was never an assistant coach, or he was one-year assistant coach with the Clippers and now came over to the Blazers. It's just a weird situation, man, with the Blazers. They yeah. didn't they didn't interview any GM candidates when they hired Joe Cronin. Like that that has always bothered me. That always rubbed me the wrong way. You don't even talk to anybody else. You just give this guy the job who had never had a GM job before. 
Like, I understand you want to be faithful and you want to promote, promote within, but the guy never had a GM job, and you just give him the job for four years. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You didn't go out and interview anybody. Danny Ainge had interest in the gig. They didn't even talk to him. So, like, it's just it's the upper management, Jan. It's just, again, problem after problem with them. Yeah, and meanwhile, I did radio today, earlier today, in Salt Lake City on uh, ESPN 700, Bill Riley's show, and they were asking about Damian Lillard, and the thing that's going on in Utah, you look at these, you know, the Jazz and the Blazers, they're in relatively the same boat uh, in the Western Conference, but the difference is that, you know, Utah's got a general manager who has tremendous experience, who has championship-level experience in building winners, and there's some hope in Utah that they will make some moves in the next couple of seasons. Meanwhile, in Portland, you know, Joe Cronin might be a really nice guy. He's a good story. And, you know, again, let's look at the let's look at how this lines up, okay? The, I, there's no other way to put this. Um, the Blazers have a first-time head coach who wasn't qualified to be a head coach. They have a first-time general manager who is barely qualified or underqualified to be a general manager, and they have a wannabe owner. They don't have a real owner. They have a trustee. How the heck is that supposed to win? It's not. It's not built to win, and it won't win. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest is a former University of Oregon football player, played offensive line. Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich era offensive lineman, uh, was uh, a uh, frequent uh, contributor to this show over the years and is now has now launched a comedy career. Now, I have a lot of respect for people who get up on stage by themselves under the light with the task of trying to make other people laugh. Nick Cody, former Oregon Duck offensive lineman, has launched a career in comedy. He is part of a comedy show that is taking place tomorrow night, 8 p.m. at the Vessel Tap House in Linwood, Washington. Tapped Out Comedy, at Tapped Out Comedy on social media. Headliners tomorrow night will be Courtney Bird and Michael Aguilera. Also, uh, Megan KD will be there, and Nick Cody will be hosting the event along with Rob Conroy. And Nick Cody joining us now from the great state of Washington. Man, you are on your way. Hey, thank you very much for having me on, John. And it's kind of you for saying that, but, uh, you know, this is something I was able to just luckily put together with the venue and grab some comics that I've seen recently and worked with and uh, just put it together within the last month. So we're hoping it's good enough to, uh, to get some tickets sold and get people out there so we can do it again sometime soon. Yeah, and look, uh, and I'm all about live performance, and I respect that, and I encourage people if you want to get tickets to this. I literally just Googled Tapped Out Comedy Show, and Nick Cody, uh, you popped up. And so for people who want to get tickets, general admission's 10 bucks. Uh, you can go to the Vessel Tap House as well tomorrow night, 8 o'clock in Linwood, Washington. But give us an idea. Like, we have, we've kind of had you on a few times over the years, and I can remember, like, you know, this, this dream kind of started with you saying you wanted to take, like, a – improv class and a comedy class and you know take us through the progression of that you know because you go from football player to comedian now and now you're part of a big event well i think you know a lot of people that have an interest in stand-up like me spend a lot of time thinking about doing it but just never quite committing to it 
So the gateway for me was taking a, a stand-up comedy course and just getting stage time and getting feedback from people that I respected in the comedy community. And then uh, started doing open mics last July. And uh, ever since then, I'm uh, getting close towards uh, doing 100 different individual sets. I've recorded uh, about 72 of those. And uh, it's just it's been a great process. It's, uh, it's fun, but, you know, those, those times you bomb aren't as bad as giving up a stack or a holding call in the Rose Bowl. So uh, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, give us an idea. Okay, so, you know, when you first start out, you go to this comedy course, and you have other people like yourself who maybe have dabbled in it or not done it. You know, it's not like Chris Rock is going to be part of the audience. So it's a safe place to fail, right? And, but then you start doing open mic, you know, showing up, you know, getting on a list, trying to do comedy in front of people. What, you know, at what point, like, that first time you went out there, your knees knocking a little bit? You're a little bit nervous? No, I think that's the one thing, like, the advantage I've been able to take from my football career and just compartmentalize. Uh, you know, the one thing is I'm so used to tuning the audience out in football that it's, it's been hard for me to actually adapt to, like, when you need to listen, when you need to be patient, when you can't just force things. So, for me, the, the nervousness thing isn't, isn't really a problem, but... Uh, I don't even think you necessarily need a comedy course. I just think that was a place that I felt I could, you know, just test the waters. And then if you go out and just watch some open mic comedy, you will start thinking you yourself can definitely get up there and do better than some people that go to open mics. So you just go and you see and people try and try new stuff, and sometimes it doesn't work. And uh, once you just commit to doing it, it's a process from there. And uh, there's a bunch of different ways. People learn different ways, but uh trial and error is always the uh the biggest one give me an idea nick cody uh your set as you get up there because you're kind of the host of the event and there's some other headliners but you're going to be doing some some bits in between all of the comics i'm assuming so when you uh when you are up there are you talking about football or, or what it, what what is your subject matter so, uh, you know, it depends on the gig. If I'm hosting an open mic, we'll kind of do a little bit of chatter after, just something to keep the crowd going. With something like this format, it's going to be more about the comics and showcasing them, uh, give them some walk-up music and say their name real nice and try and not mess it up. Uh, but, you know, when I'm up on stage, I do have – I pick certain nights where I'm like, okay, we'll use some of the football stuff. But that's like a crutch for me almost because that's the stuff I've written over, you know, years of life experience and things that have happened. So – uh, you know, for example, I used to be an offensive lineman, and now my lines are just getting more offensive. So sometimes I'll throw that bit out there in the material I've already pre-written, but some nights I'm just like, you know, I, I want to focus on current events, uh, former jobs I've had, things that are interesting and relevant to me, and then uh, I, like to, I like to talk to the audience a little bit, get some crowd work in. It, it's going to be a mix of things uh, with hosting tomorrow night, but my set itself, uh, no, uh, this one is not going to have any football in it. Let me ask you because, you know, I love good comedians. And a guy that I'm into, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, is kind of blown up, right? Like, mm -hmm. he has uh, become kind of a big deal. And uh, I, there's just something about his routine. Part of it is that, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, his Italian heritage. Here, I'm going to play a clip here so people know what I'm talking about. Here's Sebastian Maniscalco talking about Italians playing basketball. Italians, we don't play basketball. When's the last time you put an NBA game on and said, take a shot, Nunzio? It doesn't hit. <laughs> put in Carmine for the three. No. Tynes, what do we do? Cement. Nice cement driveway. 
meatball sandwich, give us a church, we'll paint the whole ceiling. I mean. Well, there's self-deprecation that seems to work in comedy. Why is why is that? Well, number one, it's going to depend on your audience. Some places you go, it's going to be a lot easier to be self-deprecating than uh, possibly insult maybe their region or something that affects them. If you're able to start with yourself and work outwards, that's always relatable to people. So, you know, always commenting on, on my obvious size and just being a lot bigger than other comics, that'll always come up. Um, jokes about that. Uh, it, but honestly... It's, it's knowing your audience and, uh, and being honest to yourself. Once you can actually be able to be yourself on stage, that's kind of the huge breakthrough for a lot of people at first because sometimes you go up there and you're just reading things you, you've written down before. But once you can actually just go up there and be your own personality, whether that reflects on your heritage or your life experience or, or whatever you're just thinking about that day, when you can just go up there and be honest and have a couple punchlines at the end, man, the audience will get behind you almost every time. Jim Gaffigan uh, is a guy I like to watch as well. I'm going to play a clip from him, and I got a question for you, Nick Cody. Here's Gaffigan talking about horse racing. We are a country that loves to bet on horses. Every spring we track the three races of the Triple Crown, and every spring I always have the same thought. We're still doing this? Is Woodrow Wilson president? But people love the Triple Crown, the Kentucky Derby, where people bet on horses while they're dressed like characters from Gone with the Wind. It's like prom for gamblers. <laughs> Do you like my hat? I'm living in my sister's garage. Because <laughs> I have a debilitating gambling addiction. <laughs> Shall we have another mint julep? There, there's observational humor there. Do you take notes when you see something and you go, oh, uh, that would be funny? Absolutely. I do it especially now because... Being a journalism major, like, I've always just had a habit of following the news, different news outlets. So now especially it interprets the way I go through and I read stories and what catches my eye. And when I spend a little bit more time thinking about, like, uh, it's been pretty easy recently with, you know, Chinese surveillance balloons and chat GPT wanting to be alive. Like, all these things make it very, very easy because the material writes itself right now. <laughs> what do you think, you know, it, it, what do you think that if you had the Chinese balloon – is there like a spring practice you'd like to observe in football? Or like how would Chip Kelly use that balloon? Always uh, is something I thought about. Oh, like, man. That, that, back in the day, we were always worried about Arizona State stealing our signal. So I think it would be more like a counter-activity uh, balloon. That balloon would be shooting other balloons out of the sky if it were Chip Kelly's balloon. So uh, I, I don't think he would be looking – too much to see other people's practice reports so much, but using it more to keep uh, the airfield over uh, right there, Pape Field and stuff, uh, closed off to uh, the public. Is, was there a reason why – was Arizona State stealing signs, or what were they doing? Oh, man, they always just had that reputation, but especially when Chip first took over, uh, you know, when uh, Aaron Flugrad actually transferred over their wide receiver, and his dad was a former wide receivers coach when I was getting recruited in my freshman year. And, uh, yeah, when he transferred, uh, we had pretty much understood that we'd get at, but have to change all our offensive calls because uh, numerically he was going to give those up. So we, we basically changed how the play calls were called in and, and the numbers associated with those. Had to change up everything. And then when I was more towards a senior uh, and they had a different staff there, uh, we noticed on film some things where they were, you know, looked like they were trying to watch signals. So. That's why you had those different bells and whistles on the side, like the signs they hold up that really didn't mean anything. But, hey, if you got the other team to spend some time trying to figure that out, 
hey, less time to practice our offense. Nick Cody is our guest. Uh, he's got a comedy show going on tomorrow night. It is called the Tapped Out Comedy Show. It's at the Vessel Tap House in Linwood, Washington. Uh, you can get tickets online. Nick, is there somewhere easy to go, or should they, should they just search for it or show up and get tickets at the door? Yeah, if you show up and get tickets at the door, it's only going to be about 250 more once you add on the fees. But if you go to Eventbrite, uh, a, there's a link available on uh, on social media at Tapped Out Comedy, wherever you find it. That's going to be your best place to get it early tonight. But if you if you wait till tomorrow at the door, uh, I think we'll we'll hopefully have some seats. If not, the venue has the ability to bump us to a bigger room. So hey, if we could sell it out, let's sell it out. I've got some friends coming up for Emerald City Comic Con, so I'm hoping we can fill the room at least. Hey, look, uh, I really am proud of you. I think it's been great to watch you kind of attack this, and I won't be surprised when you have big-time success. So any of our listeners, if you happen to be up in Linwood tomorrow night or you want something fun to do tomorrow night, uh, go see Nick Cody. Go see the Tapped Out Comedy Show. 8 o'clock, doors open, Vessel Tap House in Linwood, Washington. Nick Cody, I appreciate you, man. Uh, Keep up the fight. Good work. Thank you, John. I've got, like any good comedian, I've got a closing line for you. I'm ready. I was listening last hour, and I got to tell you, I always knew Anna sounded like a keeper, but I always assumed it was at least a thing she owned. (laughs) Have a good one, John. (laughs) There you go, Nick Cody, sending us off. I think it's one of the hardest things to do, to try to be, like, I think, I know it's one of the hardest things to do with writing. Like, I had a great writing coach uh, years and years ago when I was at the Fresno Bee, Charlie Waters, who was the former L.A. Magazine editor, was a fantastic writing coach. And he was the executive editor of the Fresno Bee. And it's no surprise that the Fresno Bee turned out writers like John Branch, who went on to win a Pulitzer, Jeff Passan, who you see on ESPN, Adrian Wojnarowski, who you see on ESPN, Andy Katz, who was on ESPN, Eric Prisbell went to the Washington Post, uh, I went through there, you know, I like, look, it was, it was like murderer's row and Charlie made everybody better. And, you know, Charlie taught me how to throw more than one pitch. You got to be, sometimes you got to be, uh, you know, you know, bang your shoe on the table. Sometimes you uh, have to throw a change up. Sometimes you have to throw a curveball. Uh, you have to be a starting pitcher when you are writing sports columns or when you're a writer in general. But I, I really do think the most difficult thing to do, it's very hard to get the timing and you get humor right. And uh, for comedians who stand up there and do that on a daily basis, and guys like Jerry Seinfeld who have mastered it, I think it's uh, incredibly inspiring. And good on Nick Cody for, for taking a stab at it after a college football career. I'll leave you with a little Jerry Seinfeld as we go to commercial break. What's annoying now besides everything? Here's what's annoying me. People telling me to hydrate. I don't want to hear about hydrating, you need to hydrate, Jerry, you better hydrate, you're on the plane, you're in the gym, you gotta be hydrating, make sure you're hydrating, are you hydrating? Do you know what could happen to you if you don't hydrate? You could get dehydrated. (laughs) Wouldn't I get thirsty first? No! (laughs) According to the fitness people on TV, if you feel thirsty, you're too late! (laughs) What do you mean I'm too late? What do I do? There it is, Jerry Seinfeld, leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Top Timbers coming up right here on 750 The Game, top of the hour. Timber season uh, underway. 
lot of uh, activity around the Timbers, a lot of Timbers fans out there. Uh, Oregon has advanced in the Women's Pac-12 tournament with a come-from-behind win over Washington. The Ducks will play Stanford tomorrow in Las Vegas, 2.30 tip in Vegas from uh, from the uh, arena there. And Kelly Graves and the Ducks still alive, still playing. Uh, we'll keep an eye on them. Uh, Oregon State is playing tonight, Scott Ruick and the Beavers. 8.30 tip-off tonight against USC, trying to advance to uh, tomorrow as well. So uh, keep an eye on that. If they do beat USC, Oregon State would get Colorado tomorrow night in Vegas at 8.30. Um, I do not see the Ducks and the Beavers playing. They would only be able to play if they played in the championship game, which is uh, coming up on Sunday at 2 o'clock. So no game Saturday in the women's tournament. Only uh, today is the opening round uh, with uh, uh, eight teams in action. Uh, tomorrow's games, the quarterfinals, the semifinals are Friday, and the finals are on Sunday uh, for the Pac-12 Tournament Championship. It looks like, it, you know, it feels like it's going to be Utah against Stanford. Those are the two best teams. But um, keep an eye. We'll see what happens uh, as uh, as uh, this tournament unfolds. Next week, we have the men's tournament. Uh, that one should be a little more wide open. On the women's side of the of the uh, tournament, there were some obvious, two obvious teams uh, that seemed to be better than everybody else. On the men's side, it's UCLA. And by the way, can we give Dan Guerrero, the old AD at UCLA that Bruins fans just gave the hardest time to, ran him out. Dan Guerrero hired Mick Cronin. It's one of his last acts as athletic director at UCLA. That appears to have worked out, like, you know, and I think a lot of UCLA fans conveniently forget that as they're criticizing Dan Guerrero. Like, the guy did a good job of finding a basketball coach and leaving that program in good hands. Yes, he also hired Steve Alford. But, uh, you know, as if we're counting wins and losses, you got to put Mick Cronin and what UCLA basketball has done, got to put that in the win column for UCLA. Number four team in the country, 16-2 and in conference play, look like the most reliable, trustworthy team that you can – see in the bracket um you know that's going to be interesting arizona um arizona's a little different they they appear to be vulnerable at times they have five losses in conference play and i've not seen an arizona team even though i think tommy lloyd's a really good coach i've not seen another arizona team look that vulnerable that that i that a lot of people have penciled in to be like a sweet 16 or an elite eight team i don't think so in arizona they they just have some uncharacteristic losses but uh the ducks will be in action uh, tomorrow night against Cal, the men. They need that win and, uh, you know, should be able to count on that win as they're chasing Arizona State for the four seed and a first-round bye. Uh, the Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Grab a podcast. I'll check you out later.